Hello, and welcome to another of the Sitcom Club's summer spin-off podcasts. Joining myself, Mooncat, today is DCT, also known as George Grimwood. Hello. Today, we are bringing the listeners of the Sitcom Club a composite episode of one of the podcasts on the Talk Show Talk Show, which is part of the Podnose Network. So explain a little bit about that, if you would, and then we'll go straight into it. Much like the Sitcom Club does for sitcoms, the Talk Show Talk Show podcast is all about talk shows, from Letterman to Leno, from Carson to Cavett, not excluding, of course, all UK chat shows, such as Parkinson and Wogan and Hearty and Graham Norton and everyone in between, and all aspects covered along the lines. And in this episode, which has been compiled of three or four, I believe, when it went out, in which Mooncat and myself discuss an episode of The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson from November the 9th, 1972. And I believe the YouTube link to watch that show will be in the description of this episode. I would advise that you watch that first to make sense of what we're about to talk about. And we'll be out with you every week. And we're all part of the Podnose Network. More shows will be joining the network in due time. This is where worlds collide. This is a good episode for us to put out because it's myself and the host of this very podcast here, the Sitcom Club as well, Mooncat, aka Gary. I hope you enjoy it. If you don't, then don't tell us about it. But if you do enjoy it, then subscribe to the Talk Show Talk Show podcast. All the details of that will be up in various places, but also will be mentioned at the end of this show. We have the music. We have Ed McMahon's voiceover. We have the set, the classic set, mustard yellow, three-seater sofa, a single swivel chair for Ed and singular guests, and the desk, which almost certainly resembles a tiki bar, on a shagpile platform with a faux backdrop with seven arched windows looking over a, a faux version of California, highlighted by various plants around the set. Carson comes out, those famous curtains, multi-pattern curtain, perhaps to emphasise... Carson in his suit at the front there. He comes out and the show begins. Gary, what were your initial thoughts on this episode of The Tonight Show? First thing that struck me was it was a very relaxed atmosphere. Carson's monologue was... I wouldn't say that it was a classic. It wasn't firing in all cylinders. And the audience reaction actually seemed a little bit sort of muted at this point. But the interesting thing about the monologue was that it was just that. He wasn't actually doing quick-fire gags. He was just talking about the events that happened, and if there's a gag related to it, you know, he come out with it. But sometimes it was just sort of conversational, just chatting with Ed and chatting with Doc and so on. And it's a very nice, warm opening to the show. And it sets the pattern for the rest of the show. It sets the pace for the rest of the show because it wasn't bang, 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 here's our guests, we've got to hold your attention at all times, don't you dare flip, don't dare have a look at the other channels, and so on and so on. It was all very relaxed. And in many ways, it, it sort of reminded me a little bit of if you were watching a studio tape of something that hadn't been fully edited yet. And so you just have, like, you know, little pauses here, and, and okay, the Bee Gees come down and sit on the set and just chatting away, and little piece that they talked about, oh, the, the equivalent shows of this in the UK, who's that? Oh, Michael Parkinson, okay. Things like that, which don't necessarily go anywhere, they're not leading to a gag, but they're just there for their own sake. I like the overall atmosphere, I like the overall pace, I like the fact that it was so relaxed and it wasn't constantly grabbing a hold of you and saying, we want your attention. 
don't dare look away. Yeah, absolutely. The first impression I got of the monologue itself as well, that you have a certain order in the way of introducing Ed, introducing the band and Doc, and still it just feels like banter, riffing, all part and parcel of the standard set monologue. Of course, highlights the political elements of the time. Of course, Nixon was re-elected in a landslide two days previously. He mentions Ed McMahon's act that he'll be performing in New York. Of course, it was the week later that they went for three weeks in total, I believe, to back to New York, having already left there previously to go to Burbank a few months before the summer in 1972. And... I'd be very interested, actually, to see what Ed McMahon's act consisted of. If I'm not mistaken, I know that he sings, or has sung, but, yes, 1972, Ed McMahon had an act at St. Regis in November. I'd be very intrigued to see if any of our listeners or anyone has any information about certain things that we'll highlight throughout the show. If anyone has any articles or anything that they discover, we we found a few along the way, but if anyone has anything of any interest that we reference in this episode, please do send it in, put us in the right direction, because there were some great things in this episode, looking at it from a critical and analytical perspective. Certain things about that era that... It wasn't a case of me looking into references to get the joke. It was to also get a feel of that era and... In that respect, would you say the selection of guests for this episode, I mean, bearing in mind that this has been handpicked to go up from the official Johnny Carson YouTube channel, would you say it captures the essence of a definitive Tonight Show with Johnny Carson show? Yes, I would say so. I mean, you've got comedian Joan Rivers. You've got comic performer, actor Rob Reiner, musicians, the Bee Gees, and you have an author. So you've got a nice mixture there, a nice mix, a nice blend in terms of just overall good conversation. And you don't have the requirement, there's there's no need to suddenly be full on and say, right, here comes comedian A, bang, 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 doing their stuff, and then comedian B, and so on and so on. It's a nice mixture. And also the fact that you've got the offer coming on at the end, that sort of helps you to unwind as well because Joan Rivers is quite sort of direct and she's sort of firing out the gags early on. And then as the show goes on and it gets past half past midnight, it gets towards 1am, then you've got then a slightly slower pace. So when the offer's on at the end, then, and Rob Reiner's still there and they're just sort of having a conversation really. So it just winds down nicely. And yes, it is a very good mix and you'd say that it is a textbook selection of guests. And also emphasises certain aspects, certain, I don't want to use the term stereotypical, but certain aspects that are directly affiliated with the concept, with the how people remember The Tonight Show. You've got the hi-yo straight from the get-go. You've got Ed McMahon going hi-yo from the get-go. And you've got Doc Severinsen wearing something unusual and blasé, sort of his patchwork attire. And you've got, at the end of the monologue, little... Carson's little golf putt to the towards the band to kick it off and it's got all those great aspects which yeah. I, I'd be certain that it was never always going to be every single night all that you know all those aspects came together it's probably one or the other depending on time and circumstances and the atmosphere of the crowd as well and I mean in the monologue aside from the political aspects as well you also have referencing and the way he introduces Doc Severinsen into the monologue is raiding massage parlors along Melrose yeah and it was around there at that time in that year that the groundlings eventually set up shop in that area and 
the way they introduced Doc Severinsen by implying that, oh, you know, he's left some evidence behind implicating him in this somewhat saucy situation. It's all very playful, it's all very light banter, but it also emphasises the raciness of that time. I mean, if you look at the way Joan Rivers delivers herself and you've got Dr. David Rubin talking about sex quite openly and you've got Rob Reiner talking about his marriage, there's a certain thematic element going on in terms of the relationship, sex, this new generation, and what can and can't be said on television. The YouTube channel has omitted the entrances of the guests. Carson introduces them, they're on the seat. And I don't know if that's a copyright issue, perhaps with the music, or not, but that's the only edits that I noticed, apart from one. And that's when they refer to the Osmonds, Donny Osmond specifically, going from the Pepsi generation to the blank generation. And there's a little laugh, and then it moves on. And I, I've no idea what that was referencing, but they mute that word, and I have no idea what that word is. Little clues, little things. And before we continue, Gary, you and I have had a look at a auction online. Now, I don't believe it was the same desk as the one that's featured in this episode. This one was a little later on, if I'm not mistaken, in the, in the auction. It's a couple of years after this episode, in 1972. But there was an interesting metallic stand that was nailed just in from underneath. Yes. On Carson's side of the desk, which can't be seen to the human eye on camera. It's just there for something that Carson can use. Now, about 20 minutes in to the show, and he's in the middle of an interview with Joan Rivers, there's a moment where he puts his arm down and a cigarette just appears out of nowhere and it's lit. And he does a little, takes a little puff and then he puts it back down underneath and his hand's free again. Now, initially I thought, right, well, that must mean that maybe there's a secret ashtray there. But he stubs it out on an ashtray on the desk a couple of minutes later. So I still don't know what that metallic holder is. <laughs> but I'm convinced that there is a strong chance that he, and I'll have to rewatch this, that Carson must have made some kind of nod or some kind of action yeah. that the production crew were aware of, where perhaps a runner or someone essentially goes under the desk, <laughs> lights a cigarette in his mouth, and then hands it to him for him to take a puff. Because obviously he can't light the cigarette, but he can put it out. So it's just little things like that that I just found fascinating. It's just the concept of, oh, well, we'll just take a puff, we we'll do this, yeah, put it out. But you can't be, I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if you could be seen lighting a cigarette, but you could certainly be seen putting one out on this talk show. And that's a really good point, actually. I've got no recollection of seeing anybody actually light up in a talk show or a current affairs show because you see people smoking all the time on those shows but unless it's perhaps like a guest for example maybe they're like Gerard Depardieu <laughs> well yes indeed but no unless it's like a guest who's maybe lighting a pipe or something like that as far as the host is concerned you don't really see them lighting up but you quite often see them with a the cigar in their hand but yeah okay yeah it's a good point I, I don't recall ever seeing Carson or anybody else suddenly get the lighter out and, and light up but smoking itself and stubbing out that's acceptable <laughs> it's an odd sort of protocol it's yeah it's i still don't know what that metallic thing was for maybe maybe he parked his cigarette on there perhaps i don't know but the mystery remains now maybe i'll put this photo up on the at talk show podcast feed on twitter but it's a mystery this strange sticky out metallic bit of this desk I, I do wonder what it is. Maybe, I mean, maybe at this point, maybe, because as I say, it's this desk that was in the auction was a couple of years after this episode. So maybe, 
maybe they tighten the re- the reins a bit and maybe the ashtrays perched on there. I don't know. But then it seems too easy to knock. But now I know that this is a tiny thing, but it's just another piece of the puzzle of the magic of television. It's just little things that are going on in the background that we're sort of not too familiar with. But back to the monologue. They also reference cancellations. Now, this was a situation where it was the mid-season cancellation, something that does still happen today. And they reference Bonanza, which was struggling in the ratings because of the death of Hoss, Eric Hoss Cartwright, the character, a.k.a. Dan Blocker, who died in May that year. You have Anna and the King, which I was very intrigued about. Now, I knew, of course, about the film, The King and I, Yul Brynner and so yeah. but I did not know about a sitcom. Well, there's so many different shows that just completely passes by, and things like, I mean, I can see it in front of me here on the shelf, the complete directory to primetime network and cable TV shows from 1946 to present, and I think present then was probably about 2000 or so. But, yeah, there's just there's so many... Given the number of networks you've got and the longevity, they've just got so many possibilities for for like individual pilots and, and pilots that may not be even been broadcast. Pilots that did get broadcast, shows that began and then were pulled within a handful of episodes. It's not really a phenomenon that we're too familiar with in the UK, apart from very high-profile examples of shows. In the UK, for example, Sin on Saturday, the talk show with Bernard Falk, which was pulled after three episodes. Things like the sitcom Hardwick House, which was pulled after two. Apart from a little period around about sort of 2003 where ITV had a a sudden spate of these premature cancellations, it's not really a phenomenon that we're too familiar with in the UK. By and large, when shows begin, they do tend to see out their course, even if they perhaps get shunted on the schedule, perhaps get moved to a less competitive slot. Whereas, yeah, it does seem more sort of prevalent phenomenon in the US that shows that don't do well just get pulled, they just get axed. And they don't really have a great deal of time for letting shows bed in. It does seem that shows have got got to sort of prove themselves very, very quickly. Uh, But of course, it depends on what time of year you talk about as well, because if it's something like, say, Sweeps Week, for example, then obviously they're going to have their very, very best output on then. But there'll be all times of the year, perhaps summertime, for example, where you can take more risks. Yeah, and I think Anna and the King was closer to the risk factor in terms of the fact that Margaret Landon did not approve, the author of the original book, Anna and the King of Siam. And just generally, it's an unusual situation. It's it. I, I would have to watch an episode to see if there was a laugh track, but there, it was a non-musical adaptation for starters. It wasn't like they were singing and dancing in the sitcom. But by the time it was cancelled, by the time they announced the cancellations to the point where... Johnny Carson's using it in the monologue. It was seven episodes in, and it it just petered out with a final episode airing on New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy-two. And I must watch some of this. I must see this. I must. I must. Does it survive? Do we know if it survives in the archive? I believe the pilot is circulated. I don't believe it's been released on DVD. I I'd imagine, and I'd have to check this, but I would imagine that a version of the DVD of The King and I, or a Blu-ray version or something, might have something about it perhaps i i imagine it probably doesn't get a huge amount of publicity probably will never be released publicly on dvd because of the margaret landon lawsuit which i don't believe was successful but nevertheless obviously it's stifled a few feathers and also the fact that you have your brinner still in it playing the king of siam but then you have anna owens portrayed by samantha egger replacing deborah kerr and i'm not surprised it didn't last essentially but the other cancellation they mention is the bold ones the new doctors which ran 
until May 1973, but there was all different strands of the bold ones that covered different careers, and they had one about law and medical profession, of course, and amongst others. One thing that struck me, actually, about the routine that Carson did with Ed McMahon about the TV listings is that they had the elbow room to set that gag up because the setup was basically him reading all of these different listings, all these different synopses of these shows. And you've got a sort of a, I mean, how long was it? Sort of two, three, four minutes where he's reading all these different things. Some of them are getting a mild giggle from the audience. A lot of them are getting no reaction at all. Quite flat, yeah. Yeah. And I was actually beginning to think at one point, is this actually the bit? Is is this the bit itself? Is it just, he's going to read these as if they're going to get a reaction from, in themselves from the audience. And as it turned out, of course, then he revealed that their creative team had actually come up with some alternative listings for these shows. But it was nice that, again, they just had the time to set that gag up. It was like, okay, we're going to set the scene, pay attention, here's what we're talking about, and now here comes the reveal. Yeah, the audience reacting to that was essential to that working and the fact that they barely reacted to just the casual listings being read out so yeah we, we all have a copy of tv guy johnny and then they have their own versions and they just throw them out and they all get big laughs and they all hit hard and it's interesting that you can test the waters with the audience on the base of their reaction to certain topics as well for example in the monologue again you've got reference to the bureau of indian affairs building takeover which I'm not mistaken, finished that day, but it was kind of a sour point for Nixon's re-election to begin with, to the point where he'd privately signed the Restoration Act that returned Menomee Indians to full tribal status, which was part of the whole issue that led to the takeover. And the reaction from the audience wasn't particularly reactive. I think if that routine was to be performed today, if Letterman was to do something like that, for example, I suspect that they wouldn't have the long lead-in. I suspect that it would be constructed in such a way as he would read out the original TV guide listing and then immediately read out their revised version for that show and then repeat, repeat, repeat. I don't think that they'd want to have a sequence that was two or three minutes long that wasn't getting laughs, even if it wasn't intended to get laughs, if you know what I mean. I think that they would want to be much more bang, 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 holding your attention. Yeah, and I think it also helps that Ed McMahon is there to usher in the laughter and provide a buffer zone that even if it doesn't hit with the audience, it will hit with Ed because that's what, that's what Ed does. And there he is. And I like the fact that they have that loose banter before the TV guide bit as well. The fact that they've got, they have a little chat about the loose wires randomly being behind the desk. He picks them up going, what are these for? <laughs> Which I'd imagine were there for the Bee Gees yeah. performing later on. And they talk about returning to New York for three weeks and which they refer back to later on where the first guest of the first New York show on their return the following week is Mayor John Lindsay, the mayor of New York at the time. And Ed McMahon talks about how he's appearing the following night on November the 10th, 1972 on Diner's Place, which I must hunt down that episode for the sake of continuity. And then I like the fact there's also a reference to Peter LaSalle, who is the associate producer on The Tonight Show at this point. And he's known as the host whisperer he was inv is involved with The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson to this day. And we'll, we'll be looking further into his career and his involvement in an episode further down the line of the Talk Show Talk Show. Now, actually, in between Johnny getting from stage to desk, we had a little intervention from Ed McMahon, didn't we? Yes. 
Now, there's a couple of these throughout the show, and I'm so glad they've kept those in as well. And not just those, but the general adverts that went out, which is fantastic. And I'm glad, I'm glad they kept those in on the official YouTube channel. It's an interesting element of which advert... The fact that adverts stay in, but the musical intros don't. It's very particular. But in this first in-house advert, as it were, you have Ed McMahon advertising Budweiser. Did it make you want to have a Bud? If it wasn't for the fact that I actually don't drink beer at all, then yes, it would have done. He's a very persuasive salesman. And he's actually, he's not coming across as... Okay, yeah, he is coming across as a salesman as in it's entirely set up in that way because here he is stood in front of the Budweiser stand and it's very, very clearly telegraphed this is a sponsor's message. But nevertheless, it's just Ed McMahon and he's saying, hey, look at this, you know, eight packs, Budweiser, and you get this little gift if you get them in the store and so on. And yeah, it, it's nice. He's, he's Even though he is clearly doing a sales pitch, he's not coming across as some sort of smarmy, sleazy salesman. It's just Ed McMahon. It's just like he's one of the guys you'd imagine just having a butt with. So he's actually absolutely perfect for that particular pitch. And another aspect of the Larry Sanders show made sense to me. Yes. <laughs> From the very first episode, they they talk about advertising, in-house advertising. What is it? Is it the garden weasel? Is that it? The garden weasel. <laughs> and Larry's very uncomfortable with doing the adverts. And then he gets Hank involved, and Hank is a natural. And proves from the get-go that despite his idiocy, he's also very loyal and he has his talents and Larry needs him as much as Hank needs Larry, just for very different reasons. I would be very interested to see if anyone out there ever did get involved with this promotional sale of Budweiser and got this, I think it's, what is it, it's metallic, these small metallic replicas of the Clydesdale horses and their carriages that were used to represent Budweiser and I am a fan of those promotional things of kind of tat. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to use exactly that word. It is tat. It's exactly what it is. It's just some little trinket that you can get when you buy an 8-pack. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But now, okay, now, now keep an eye on your screen there, George, because I'm just going to send something to you. Okay, hang on a second. For those who aren't aware, we're not doing this in the same room. This is via Skype. No, we are, no, but we've just decided that even though we're in the same room, we're also doing it over Skype on, on two entirely different PCs and connections. It's a bit weird, actually, but yeah. Have a look at that. Now, I, I see, there you go. Then there, there is an example of the kind of thing that we're talking about. If you want to put that link up onto the, uh, the homepage. It's on eBay. Budweiser cast iron wagon pulled by eight Clydesdale horses. Not a replica. I think there must be a replica because... <laughs> what do you mean not a replica? It's not... Unless you're actually going to get a wagon with a driver and eight Clydesdale horses for $53.99, then clearly it is a replica. I would be intrigued to see if this was part of the promotion from another from another year, because I know that the ones that we see in the advert are silver, and these ones are painted, I believe. I won't be spending $53.99 on this particular link that you've... I'm, I'm thinking, you know the expression, man-child. Man-child? Yeah, as in, as in like... Like men who have still got interest in in like sort of childish things, so like men who make like model airplanes or things like that, or you know get like the make airfix kits. Well, we don't want to, we don't want to be knocking our audience. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm I'm saying precisely in in that instance that something like that. I think 
that that's the sort of audience for it. You know, the little collection of of because it's got it's got no value. There's there's no actual you're not actually buying anything. It's not an antique. It also doesn't serve any purpose. It, it's not particularly sort of decorative. It, it's just it's just there, like you said, a piece of tat. But you know, it, it's something that that sort of. I can sort of imagine if you go in and there's your eight pack of Budweiser and well, hey, there's wee horses. Brilliant. I'll have that as well. And I'll sit on the shelf gathering dust for the next 20 years. Or, you, or depending which state you're in and, what, and literally what state you're in, you just go into the, into the convenience store and pick up your eight pack of Bud and they go, hey, sir, would you like uh, this tat here? And just grab the Bud and just, and just chuck it in the bin as you walk out. And, just go and drink your beer and... Yeah, it, I would love to see, and I'm giving this idea out for free, if someone could set up a Tumblr or a blog or something that highlighted tat that had been given away as part of an offer for whether it's cereal or beer or anything, tat corner on Tumblr. There's a lovely episode of Razan series one called Kanuga Time, where Dan is under pressure from Razan to get rid of all his, as she sees it, junk. And Everything that he's got is exactly like that. It's all this just kind of you know, all these little items that he's collected over the years. And it's, he said one in one particular piece, he says that is an authentic replica Civil War field piece, as if there's something about a replica being authentic in some way. And he's got, for example, he's got his cuckoo clock that has the bear that pops out and burps on the hour, and he even. Let slip at one point that even he can't stand it. He just keeps it around to annoy us. <laughs> There's definitely something to be said for having a tat corner, and I'm not recommending everyone has one. But and I'm sure there are probably blogs and tumblers that do exist of these. But if someone could put me in the right direction for the essential, definitive online guide to them, I'd be very intrigued. Well, can I, can I just can I just stop you there? If you want to see tat, then don't bother going online. Just come round to my place next door. Then it's all there. I am the person who collects all this junk. I've got a room full of it just now. I've just got acres and acres and acres of all this kind of stuff. What what's what's the other thing I got the other day? I think it was some piece of oh it was some something about the mexico 86 world cup a little fella with the sombrero and the ball and what have you that's a genuine replica authentic original when i worked at a bar i collected beer towels i think there was an element of myself where i thought i'm never gonna get out of the bar so i just i also come to its cultures and bought a fair bit of bar and pub and beer ephemera and (laughs) those towels are in my cupboard. I don't know what to do with them. Although, there is... In fact, there is someone who actually has the Guinness World Record for having the most bar towels. And he contacted me when I bought a batch on eBay. <laughs> this was years ago, I'd like to point out. I, I've... You've moved You've moved on from the bar towel era. I, I'm no longer in the bar towel business. Yes. <laughs> but he did contact me and say, oh, well, if you happen to have this one, I'll pay good money for it. I think, actually, he just exchanged it with another bar towel. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'll send you this one. All right. All right. I'm getting to the stage now, I'm 36. I'm getting to the stage now where I've still got all of my tat, but I don't necessarily leave it all out on display anymore. Whereas up until just a few months ago, I mean, my living room looked like Steve Carell's and the 40-year-old virgin. You know, everything just sort of laid out on the, the shelves and what have you, all the, the figures in the original packaging. I mean, I don't actually have anything like that, but, you know, the equivalent. IBA yearbooks on the on the bookshelf, that kind of thing. And now I'm getting to the point where 
I've still got them all, of course, and I'm loath to, to lose them, but they're also neatly packed away in cardboard boxes and cupboards and so on, so that it's not quite as glaring if you have guests, for example. Because not everybody's really interested in the Kenny Everett video show annual of 1980 and, and think that it would be a bit bizarre if you had that on display in your living room. Well, off air, we were talking about Tim and Eric, and I won't go into the full story because there are certain people who have heard this over and over again, and I won't say specifically <laughs> the person in question, but the comedy duo Tim and Eric were doing a show at Leicester Square Theatre in London a couple of years ago, and as luck would have it, we ended up hanging out with them and it was myself and a friend of mine phil and we ended up joining tim and his entourage and someone else at a chinese <laughs> restaurant is this someone else is this someone who's quite active on twitter for example yes now <laughs> now we can't i'm not going to say because i don't want to stir that pot i don't want to because also, to be fair, there's nothing wrong with the actual story, but I don't want to incur any wrath. I don't want to be... Did you watch the BAFTA Awards last week? Nope. So, <laughs> yes, we're talking about Ian Beale. So <laughs> We're talking about the cast of Gogglebox. Yes, it's all of the entire cast of Gogglebox went for a Chinese with Tim and Eric. No. So... But anyway, so I I don't know why to this I don't know why I think I think it was almost um, an end to a means, not a means to end. It was the fact that the what happened, how things turned out, was almost the reason I had what I had in my bag. I don't know prior to that why I had this in my bag at the time, but I do at one point remember Tim going, "Are you doing a bit?" And I said, "No, no, no I should have just said yes." <laughs> but long story short, I basically, for some reason, had a copy. VHS copy of Tracy Lord's exercise video in my bag. And for some reason, over this Chinese meal that I wasn't really meant to be a part of anyway, in Soho, that of a weekday evening, I had then given the VHS of Tracy Lord's exercise video to this person. And somewhere, and I'd love to see this photo... But somewhere, there is a photo of this particular person who's quite active on Twitter and may or may not have been at the BAFTA Awards the other, <laughs> the other day, holding, bemusedly, baffledly hold. He doesn't know why he's holding it. He doesn't know why I've got it. And I don't know why either until that moment. But he's holding up this video. It's nothing to do with anything. It's nothing to do with the Chinese meal. There's been no conversation about it. I've pulled it out of my bag and given it to him and people have taken a photo or two of him <laughs> confusedly holding it. And I've no idea where that photo is. There's one photo of me that circulates in some circles of myself at the, ta at the end of this table, of this round table, almost as if I shouldn't be there, like I've been doctored in to the picture, photoshopped into the picture with my thumb up. And, and, and Tim's actually looking over at me whilst this photo has been taken, as if, what are you doing here? <laughs> so, the moral of... This, 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 picture, this picture is of a crowd, is it? It is, and... It is, it is, it is it... a crowd. Okay, right, yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> so the moral of that story is... Right place, right time, you can get a photo taken with people, and 
if you carry enough tat around with you, you'll get interesting photo opportunities. And if you're even luckier than that, interesting photo opportunities of well-known people holding your tat. So that's my advice. You've got to find you've got to find that photograph. I'll tell you why. Because if you find that photograph of person X holding the exercise video, bemused, then I've got a feeling that could become Twitter's version of Andrew Neil and the young lady in Private Eye. Well, this is the thing. I don't want to go much further on this because <laughs> I I just think it's a funny photo. I don't want him to think I'm taking a Mickey because I'm not. And I, but I just think it's, I think it's a funny photo. It's a, it's a very strange photo that I know exists somewhere. And I just love to see it again because it's, well, primarily, you know what? It's not even about the person in the photo. It's about the fact that it, he's holding my copy, VHS copy on the Tracy Lords exercise video, volume one. I don't have volume two, but apparently there was a volume two. And that's, I just need to see that. But having said that, Dear listeners, if you can start the trend of carrying around the most kitsch or weird bit of tat from your collection and getting a celebrity to hold it whilst you take a photo of them, if you can start that as a trend, please do get in touch. Either at admin at podnose.com or tweet us at talkshowpodcast to any photos of yourself with a celebrity or the celebrity on its own holding a bit of your tat. And by tat, by tat, what do we mean exactly? We mean, how would you describe tat? A replica of a wagon being pulled by eight Claystone horses. <laughs> Delivering Budweiser. Yes, if you can specifically find that and find... You don't have to find it, we're just giving you the eBay link. Get in there and get it. It's only $54. What's that, 45 quid? There you go, buy Okay, so here's a very specific mission. I'm not buying it. If anyone can find... Well, if anyone can find a copy of the... Budweiser Clydesdale horses. doesn't necessarily have to be that one, but it's like they can find a copy of them that sort of came free as part of some promo somewhere along the lines in the years. Ideally, what the one from 1972, which was silver. And get a photo with either Joe Rivers, Rob Reiner, or the last surviving BG holding that. You're going to get a prize from the Talk Show Talk Show podcast. I don't know what, <laughs> but I will, I will get you something nice. I, I think, to be perfectly honest, you could probably promise them a, a brand new 4x4. Because the chances of somebody actually getting a photograph of Joan Rivers or Rob Reiner or Barry Gibb holding up a replica Budweiser car, I, I don't think that's going to happen anytime in the near future. I think may, maybe, maybe for your own safety, maybe put like a deadline on this competition, say, I don't know, 30th of June or something like that. But I think you're safe. I don't think there's any prospect of well, Someone might discover this podcast many many episodes down the line so i'm going to keep this open all the way someone might be listening to this a year after i've after we've recorded it so yeah the it's open it's open season well i think the important thing to point out is that this must be a genuine photograph not a photoshop and they have to be consenting to the photo being taken <laughs> you can't photobomb joan rivers just manically holding some a replica of does she have to be holding it or can you just pop it on a table where she's sat and then take a photograph of them in the same shot even that is the achievement. I yeah I'd, I'd allow it i'd allow it i would say that i reckon joan rivers would be up for it. i reckon even rob reiner would be up for it if you had the time to explain why <laughs> i think that's going to be the toughest bit isn't it is actually getting their attention for long enough to explain what the hell you're talking about <laughs> dr david rubin would probably be up for it 
he's he's still going. He's still he's still a psychiatrist in Los Angeles. He's still active. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's genuinely sad that Ed McMahon and Johnny Carson, Doc Severinsen, we can't photobomb them with tat, but we can certainly try with the guests of this particular episode. And back to the episode. <laughs> so TV Guide, the TV Guide bit. I like the fact that Johnny Carson goes, it's a wonder why anyone watches television. And it's a good opener to reading out from TV Guide. He reads, are we to believe that these are actual genuine ones? Uh, There's no reason why they wouldn't be. I'm pretty sure that if we looked into it further, the descriptions of Goma Pyle, June Autry, That Girl, Ozzy and Harriet, Cannon, Wild Wide West, Dennis the Menace, Doris Day, Gilligan's Island were all real descriptions of episodes. And they all had quiet reactions. But I, I would like to see if anyone can confirm if these descriptions are real episodes. And of course, if you're wondering what we're talking about, if you're this far in and you don't know what we're talking about, I have got, I will be putting up the YouTube link in the description of this episode. So you, even if you can't click through, you'll be able to cut and paste and watch it in your own time. But either way, the fact that then you have Carson not having a huge amount of reactions to these genuine TV guide descriptions. And then it goes into some great gags. They purposefully select shows that have a particular audience. For example, with Gomapal and That Girl and Wild Wild West and Dennis the Menace, they're all kind of like safe kind of daytime shows. So it underplays the fact that those reactions are quite quiet and yeah, they're not they're not great because they're, they're they're not dull, but they're not. It's not exactly exciting television. So then, in terms of the setup to the TV shows that they do their own parts about, which I won't dare try to replicate here, like the Cloudstyle Horses, but they reference the Mod Squad, the Rookies, Cannon, Marcus Welby, Ironside, Mission Impossible. And they're all kind of slightly more active shows, and I think that by having that diverse selection of shows. Even Sesame Street, the gags are emphasised, perhaps, because the shows are more particular in terms of their style and their audience, and the characters are slightly more refined. They have an opportunity to be slightly more emphasised in terms of the humour that can be added to those. Although, having said that, there's quite a quite a rude Doris Day joke in there, which I won't which I won't mention. And I like the fact they top off everything with Sesame Street with a reference to Senator McGovern, who uh, obviously lost <laughs> lost out to Nixon two days previously. So then we go to another advert, and this is the first advert. It, obviously, it's quite interesting to see the sponsors they had at the time. Do you recall the first non-in-house advert of the show? No. Was this the one for the detergent, the washing powder? So that was further down the line, that one. Oh, I see, I see. Oh, and remind me. Well, it's interesting that if there is a sponsor and they have the time, they just do two adverts from the same sponsor. So with this one, they have Vicks Formula 44, which, effective as codeine, but not narcotic, is the, is the quote. <laughs> you never get the word narcotic being used in, in any British TV adverts, do you? Well, surely anyone going effective as codeine is <laughs> misconstrued on a massive level. <laughs> that does actually remind me, I've got an idea as to what that censored word was that you noted earlier on, but if they didn't want to put it out on the programme, I don't think we should either. But... I'll, ask, I'll ask you after. And then the second one's Vicks Vapor Rub. And of course, these are all entirely appropriate adverts, given the time of year it is. And of course, as was the Budweiser advert, you'd had Thanksgiving. And then you've got winter's coming. So Vicks Vapor Rub, cold season, everything. So it's in and further down the line, you've got, I believe, a foil for your turkey. 
and things like that. So there's all little emphasized hints of the fact that, you know, winter's, winter is coming. Not in the Game of Thrones style. <laughs> I think that'd be winter is coming. Effective as codeine, but not narcotic. Vic's Formula 44. That had been slightly more <laughs> aggressive. So they get they come back from the advert and they reference a number of times throughout the show Ed McMahon's thumb. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he's got we he's had some work done. That. I think they said at one point he had a skin graft in the back of his ear onto the thumb, which right? opens up to a great gag, a uh, great visual gag. Talk to the thumb, talking to talking to my thumb. <laughs> he had twenty three stitches, but I can't find anywhere online as to what the incident was that led to damaging his thumb. I can't find that anywhere. If anyone knows what happened to Ed McMahon's thumb in 1972, please get in touch. I am intrigued as to whatever accident it was, whether it actually happened during one of his live adverts. Oh, do you reckon he sliced off his own thumb? Well, I was thinking that perhaps he was demonstrating some sort of kitchen knife set or something and saying, these blades are the sharpest you can get anywhere. You won't find anything as sharp as these in the high street. <laughs> then, it just, then it just very quickly cuts to something else and you just hear, ah, like that. I... <laughs> That would be a very much a Hank Kingsley moment, for sure. I'm... Yes. But I would like to know what happened to Ed McMahon's thumb. I couldn't find anything. I did Google several times in several different variations of Ed McMahon thumb accident. Did you just get a lot of Google images of Ed McMahon thumb? I don't... <laughs> Lots of close-ups of his thumb. I- I'm pleased to say that although there are many, many different corners, dark, dark corners of Google image, that... It hasn't got to the point where every single body part of every single person who's ever had any screen time is... Well, we don't need every single one of every person. We just need specifically a Tumblr to be set up with high-resolution close-ups of Ed McMahon's thumbs. No, just the one thumb. Okay, well, yeah, just the one. Okay, just that one then. Yeah. Because he has no thumbprint. That's that. They say how, because if he had the skin graft, he, he has oh. no thumbprint. So I, I like that, just as that little fact comes forward. Ed McMahon, on his right hand, I believe, has no thumbprint. So, <laughs> there you go. Now, before Johnny introduces the first guest, we have a moment of verbal scuffling where Johnny can't get out his words, and Ed uses the term something along the lines of, you haven't been down to the back of the booth, which I'm guessing is, of course, to do with the, shall we say, relaxed attitude to drinking before, during, and after the shows. Of course, they do smoke throughout. We've mentioned that previously. So what would you say that... I would say so, yeah. I think there is greater tolerance of alcohol in show business and particularly in the broadcast industry at this time. I mean, we've seen footage of, for example, newscasters typing away, preparing their script with glass of whiskey to one side. And obviously, as you said, with regard to the smoking, I mean, it's quite common in this era to see hosts and guests just light up and have the uh, burning cigarette in hand throughout. And one little instance, which this reminds me of, though it never goes quite as far as this, is in Bob Monkhouse's second autobiography. He describes how he was writing a radio show for Bing Crosby. And they go out to lunch, the DBC. This is way, way back. This is the 1950s. Bing is quite sort of merry early on, and by the end of the lunch, he is pretty much completely hammered. And there he is then, basically just sort of flat out. And Bob Monkhouse and the others, the BBC producers, are getting worried, thinking, what the hell are we going to do? Because we've got to do a show, and we have no Bing, because he's out like a light. And then, with just a few minutes to go, his agent arrives and just whispers to Bing Crosby, wake up, Mr. B, time to work. And Bing Crosby just sits up like Frankenstein's monster and goes out and performs the show word perfect 
does a little bit of ad-libbing with the band and so on. Everything exactly perfect. And then as soon as they walked off the stage behind the curtain, just collapsed straight back into his seat again. He seemed to have a remarkable ability to perform when the lights were on. And perhaps there's a little bit of that going on here, not specifically with Carson and with McMahon, but just in general, I think that that whole show-must-go-on type ethos, I think, probably permeates throughout the performers of this particular era. And a silly little thing like alcohol consumption is not going to get in their way. And the only example that I'm fully aware of where it's really collided is a clip that's from the late 70s Tonight Show. And you have Ed McMahon quite clearly soused on air with Johnny Carson, who milks it for what it's worth. And it's a very amusing clip, but I don't think it was a frequent issue. But maybe it was, and hopefully we will see more shows along the way to perhaps illustrate or indeed not illustrate the relaxed element of the cigarettes and alcohol on the talk show. So then they introduce Joan Rivers, except we don't see Joan Rivers come from the side of the stage or through the curtains because there's a musical edit. They remove the musical entrance of the guest. It goes, and now Joan Rivers, and there she is on the seat. No sign of Doc Severinsen, no sign of the band. We only encounter Doc Severinsen throughout this show because of these musical edits at the beginning when he's there with Johnny and being mocked for his patchwork costume. It does sound as if, for whatever reason, the Carson entertainment group when they're putting these episodes on youtube it sounds like they've got a license for johnny's theme which would be a pretty big omission if they had to also remove that as well but that doesn't necessarily extend to each individual piece that would have accompanied each guest on a nightly basis because i presume that they would have had their own individual little theme performed by the doc and of course it would be nice to see them intact and it would be nice to at least try and figure out which guests had their own set theme. I mean, for example, Don Rickles, who we'll be covering extensively further down the line in a later show, he always has the same theme as he comes out to any talk show appearance. He always has the Matador. I don't think it's actually called the Matador, but it's sort of it always reminds me of the bullfighter theme. It might even be that, I don't know, but we'll look into that. Joan Rivers, wearing a elegant black dress, comes on stage, or so we believe, because we don't actually see that part. And we go straight into it, and Joan is on form. This was time of her career where she released a couple of books. There was a book that she's promoting on this show, and she's on form. She's quick. She's quick on the draw. It's interesting to look both at Joan Rivers and, in a short while, the Bee Gees, in regards to their overall involvement and attitude with and towards talk shows. But as it stands, Joan Rivers, 1972, on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, things are good. Things are looking up. It's a good vibe. She talks about her previous involvement with having contributed a script to The Tonight Show with her comic soulmate Trevor Silverman, who went on to write for The Mary Tyler Moore Show. In fact, I discovered remained uncredited on the Romancing the Stone screenplay way further down the line. Have you seen Romancing the Stone? Oh, a long, long time ago. What's that about? I can't remember. It's, what's his name? And herself, and there's sort of, you know, and there's a sequel as well. And is Danny DeVito in it, I think? Possibly. Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner? That's him. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I should really watch that. Yeah. Or not. And there's a very quick fire relationship to it. And it's very sweet to see, actually, because Johnny is clearly, I wouldn't say overwhelmed, but clearly enthralled, clearly enamored by the quick wit of Joan Rivers and is consistently impressed by her. And she's always just solid. It was one liners. And most of them hit. And even if they don't, she's too quick for it to be an issue. They go straight into the next part and it just hits almost every time. What's your relationship with Joan Rivers? I have seen her on occasion. I remember her UK talk show she did with 
Peter Cook in the mid-1980s. I have to admit that I'm not a huge fan of Joan Rivers herself. I, I suspect that it's just perhaps something about that sort of fast-talking New Yorker style. It just doesn't do it for me. But I agree that she goes over very, very well on this show. And yeah, she doesn't pause for breath. And so even if a, a gag falls flat, then she doesn't really let it get in her way because she's already on to the next one. So she's ideal as an opening guest for a show like this, whereas later on in the show, you've got guests who are a bit more sort of conversational as the time's winding down towards the one o'clock hour. So yeah, she's absolutely ideal to get the show off to a good start at an energetic pace. I was quite intrigued to see that as the top billing, I think that's a fair comment, top billing performer on the show, this is primarily due to the fact that she had to leave early to go somewhere else, to go to a premiere, which we'll mention shortly. But I would have been interested to see her being paired up on the sofa with Dr. David Rubin. Yeah, it is a shame sometimes when you do get that kind of situation occur. I've seen it sometimes with particular guests who turn up Perhaps surprisingly, they turn up as the first guest on a show, and you can sort of tell that the time that was made available to the host was limited. So they come along, they have their bit, and then the show has to continue with everyone else. But, whereas, yeah, it is it is preferable, I think, when you've got all the guests staying on throughout, and that was an approach that was used by Michael Parkinson, of course, and was used by Michael Aspel later on. Whereas I think Terry Wogan in his shows tended to favour having the one guest having their interview and then replace them with next guest and so on. And yeah, it just comes down to the individual host and and what works best. And now, of course, you've got like Graham Norton, for example, bringing everyone out to begin with. And then, of course, then still giving them their own sort of 10 minutes or so in the spotlight, but having all of that interplay right from the word go. Jonathan Ross also had quite a nice original element to the way that he integrated the guests by having them all in the green room, but the green room, it cuts back to occasionally so that we can see that they're all there. And not always to the best success, but it's a nice touch to see them all there together. And they are aware that the camera could cut back to them, but it does also give them the opportunity to perhaps bond or really not bond, depending on which guests collide. That's part of the bit that's most interesting to myself, to be honest. It's not so much what the performer is like when they're performing, but I'm really interested to see how they are in their downtime, so to speak. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I quite like, for example, like the gotchas on Noel Edmonds' house party, for example. Because although they've still given the green light for this to be shown after the event, you are getting to see a little bit of their personality when they don't realise that they've got a camera pointed at them at the time. Although, of course, they do have to sign a release to approve of it. I That's the thing, yeah. yeah. There must have been a few times when gotchas were filmed and not approved, I would have thought. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've heard of one specific occasion at least, but by and large, I suspect that once they've calmed down, they probably not necessarily see the funny side of it, but see that it could be advantageous to them, unless they've behaved like a complete prick throughout, in which case, no, they're not going to sign the release. And with that in mind, are you going to reveal who this one example is? Is it something that you've been told? I, I don't know. I know, I don't know. I don't know this thing. I don't know the name of it. I, I believe it's a sportsman. That's all I know about it. But I believe that whoever it was behaved just so badly that they realised it would not be good to put this out in the public domain. And it was somebody... Like I said, I understand it was a sportsman. That's as much as I know about it. But I understand that they sort of came off with a sort of, do you know who I am sort of attitude. Wow. Well, I guess the other element here is, of course, there's a 
interesting element of the battle of the sexes in this episode. I mean, later on you have Dr. David Rubin and Carson bonding over a particular journalist, female journalist, who had more or less criticised both of them for various reasons. And one of the first things that Joan Rivers states in the interview is that nobody likes women writers. And to Carson's defence, he does mention Selma Diamond, who at this point had written for You Bet Your Life, Duffy's Tavern, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, and was eventually hired by Goodman Ace, who previously hired her for some work on Danny Kaye's radio show in the 40s. And she wanted to work for this show called The Big Show, which was a big radio variety program. And she ended up working for Sid Caesar and getting involved in your show of shows, which I haven't seen. I've only seen clips of your show of shows. And very much uh, integral female comedy writer that paved the way for many other female comedians and performers. And I would like to see if Selma Diamond perhaps featured on any of the Tonight Show episodes. I think the way that Johnny Carson references Selma Diamond, because he doesn't know that she's going to necessarily come out with Nobody Likes Women Writers, I'd like to think that either he knows that from having had her on the show, or alternatively I like the idea that Johnny Carson is a comedy geek. I suspect that he probably was to an extent, and I think the same would go for the magicians that he had on the show because he was an amateur magician in the past. So, yeah, I think that he is interested in the mechanics of comedy and I think that he's someone who's quite happy just to chat about that kind of thing. I think it's, I suppose it possibly depends again on the positioning in the show. You want someone who's sort of broad and speaking to the wider audience as your first guest, perhaps. But by the time you get to guest three or four, then... It's a bit more laid back then, and perhaps you've got the elbow room to be able to discuss things which might incorporate a little bit of jargon or whatever it may be. And I think that comes across when they start talking about New York versus Los Angeles. Of course, 1972 was the year that they moved The Tonight Show from New York to Burbank. And funnily enough, the following week, they go back to New York for three weeks or so. But Joan Rivers, of course, is at this point a New York voice in a Los Angeles setting. And it goes down incredibly well. And the fact that when Johnny Carson introduces Joan Rivers, he says that she'll be performing at the Ye Little Club in Beverly Hills and opens at the Sahara Hotel in Vegas on November 28th. And the fact that she's got all these gigs and in Johnny's intro, he describes her as the original comedienne is a big compliment from Johnny Carson. And it's in retrospect, it's sad the way that things turned out, of course. And... And just on that point, when he says she's the original comedian, is he presumably he's talking about stand-up? I assume so. Because there's many, many comedy performers who've come before Joan Rivers, and one name that springs to mind immediately, I would say, would be Lucille Ball, as far as being perhaps the biggest female comedy star at that point. Not to mention all, of course, the different sporting actresses and so on, but I presume that he's talking about stand-up comedy there rather than just overall comedic performers because yeah certainly Lucille Ball would be at that point the most famous comedian in the world that's a good point and in that respect I'm led to believe that when he uses the term original comedienne because of her strength to come forward in what was perceived to be a difficult time for women as a whole and in this particular quadrant women writers and women in comedy I think the term original comedian perhaps refers to her as the woman who defined women could be not comedians, but in their own right, comedians. Yeah, quite possibly so. Yeah. But of course, it wasn't to last. I mean, 
14 years later, 1986, Joan Rivers gets The Late Show on Fox, and they don't speak again. Well, I'm sure it won't be the only time that we're ever discussing late-night talk shows on Fox. <clears throat> but in this particular instance, we're not talking about 1993, we're talking about 1986. And it's interesting to hear the two different sides of this related, because... You read a quote to me the other day from Joan Rivers which implied that Joan Rivers phoned Johnny Carson, told him that she was taking the slot on Fox opposite himself and that he hung up and never spoke to her again. Now, that may be accurate, but the key detail there is when did she phone him to tell him and had he already heard about it? Because that's the that's my interpretation of it, that's my understanding of it, is that he had heard the, if not the actual full-on press release, he had already heard the rumours and effectively confirmation that this was going to happen before she then confirmed it herself. And I suspect that he probably felt as if he was in a position to expect to hear that from her first. Well, one of the other ways that it's been told is that when Joan Rivers accepted, Carson discovered the news from seeing a press conference on television and... Joan Rivers was in the process of calling him, but he decided not to take the call. I would say, in that instance, I would say that was probably a little bit, still a little bit too late on her part to ring himself, but it could be that she was asked to keep things on the wraps until that press conference took place in order to then stop it leaking. And because of that, they never spoke again. And it wasn't until February 17th of 2014, this year, where Joan Rivers reappeared, returned to. Tonight's show with Jimmy Fallon on his first show, appearing with many, many other celebrities. And one day in the near future, we will talk about Jimmy Fallon and his current run on the Tonight Show. But back to Joan Rivers in 1972, in better times in terms of the Carson Rivers relationship. And they talk about New York versus Los Angeles, and this leads to Joan talking about her daughter, Melissa, who is now in the present day co hosting with her mother in various shows and red carpet events. And I like the fact that she, of course, praises her daughter, and but at the same time says she wouldn't put her up against Bobby Fischer. And I looked up Bobby Fischer, and he was the world chess champion. And I just like the idea that somewhere I must be able to watch this. I wouldn't mind watching the world chess championship of 1972, perhaps, which was only a few months previously. So it's obviously still prevalent in the public's mind, perhaps, at this point. But Bobby Fischer had been a guest on The Tonight Show. To just quickly go back to 86 for a moment, have you seen much of Joan Rivers' Fox talk show? I haven't, but I'm giddy at the thought of seeing not only that, but also I only yesterday discovered about the Joan Rivers' Peter Cook show. It's an interesting little curiosity. Joan Rivers hosting in the UK on the BBC and with Peter Cook in the sort of Ed McMahon role. And... It's odd, to be honest. It's an it's an odd show. I mean, I think that her choice of guests she's got, for example, she's got some guests who are absolutely ideal on the talk show circuit, like, for example, Kenneth Williams. And there's a rather uncomfortable, not, not overtly, but there's a rather uncomfortable section where Dudley Moore is one of her guests. And although it's not really said, and Dudley Moore certainly doesn't say it, it's implied that here is Dudley Moore, the star of the big screen and Hollywood and so on. And meanwhile, here's Peter Cook, who, generally speaking, is considered the funnier of the two and the member of the double act who was 
sort of the comedic genius, rightly in my opinion, but here he is sort of in reduced circumstances. You know, just doing this sort of supporting role and occasionally being asked to sort of chip in and what have you. And, I mean, there's one point where Bernard Manning is one of the guests and he just looks round and says, you're funny tonight, Peter. And just as if to, you know, dig an elbow into him. And it, it's really, it's really odd. I mean, it's, 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 it's an odd piece of work as far as watching it as a fan of Peter Cook, anyway. And as far as Joan Rivers is concerned, you've got the sort of, the novelty factor of her speaking to all of these British guests and you've got the usual kind of business, you've got confusion over individual words or expressions and so on. Funnily enough, I actually like Peter Cook himself, because of course he had his very, very short-lived chat show. I think it was 1971 on BBC. As I believe there was perhaps audio of one episode in existence, and that's it. And I think, was it about three episodes that they actually got into the show before it was pulled? All I know is that I want to see this, or at the very least hear that bit of audio. The story that I'd heard, and I think it was from BBC Two documentary, I think it was around about 2003, 2004, thereabouts, is that they tried this format, I think it was BBC One, they tried this format, and I think that he, it wasn't just Peter Cook himself, I think he had like other people, like, off camera, he had like the sort of Edmund Mann figure there as well, but I mean, he himself said later on, I think it was might have been to Michael Parkinson that the reason that it didn't work was because he realised as soon as the guest started speaking, he wasn't interested in what they were saying, <laughs> so then he just stopped listening to them. But after I think it was about three weeks, Bill Cotton wants to pull the plug on the show, and he's surprised to get word back from Peter Cook's agent that he doesn't want to cancel, he wants to continue with it, and he has this meeting with them. And Peter Cook is sort of resolute about this, and then eventually Cook's agent says to Bill Cotton, can I have a word with you in private? And his agent tells Cotton that Peter actually doesn't want to continue with the show, but he's already spent all the money that <laughs> he's been paid up front for the whole series. And this is the reason why he's keen to press ahead with it, because he can't pay it back. And Bill Cotton said, well, we'll work something out, don't worry about that. So that that would be fascinating. That would be lovely to to try and get hold of the audio of that. That's that's the only bit of it that that still exists. Is is I think audio of the majority of one episode. There's certainly no video exists of it. But what reminded me of that was talking about Joan Rivers. I get the impression that unlike Johnny Carson, I don't really get the impression that Joan Rivers would be particularly interested in what her guests are saying. I know this is unfair because I haven't seen the show. I know it's unfair, but it's just the impression that I get of her. And whereas, like you said, that Johnny Carson is interested, for example, in things like the mechanics of comedy and so on, he's somebody who's very, very generous with his time on the show. He is not remotely put out if somebody, if a guest is getting more laughs than he is. And if there's a void and there's a vacuum, then yeah, yeah, he'll fill it. Then if somebody isn't going down well, then he's going to then up the tempo and so on to make sure that the show goes well. But yeah, if somebody like John Rivers is getting laughs, then he's not remotely threatened by that. He's quite happy to let that happen. Whereas, I don't know, I just get the impression of Joan Rivers, I suspect that if you're a guest on her show, perhaps you are setting yourself up to be a bit more of the stooge for her retorts. But, like I say, not seen the shows, so I really can't say, but it's just the impression I get. And just to clarify, this talk show, which featured Peter Cook, was called Joan Rivers' Can We Talk, which was the same year, in 1986, as when The Late Show starring Joan Rivers came out. And... If I'm not mistaken, the circumstances regarding the demise of that show, aside from the fact that it was tinged with tragedy in relation to 
Joan Rivers' husband, Edgar Rosenberg, and the network wanted to push him out as someone having any involvement in the show. It kind of, in some respects, mirrors the circumstances regarding Leno and his agent, Alan Kushnick, when Leno got The Tonight Show. And just one thing that you mentioned there just now about how Joan Rivers hadn't been back on The Tonight Show until recently with Jimmy Fallon. Was there ever anything, was there any issue between herself and Jay Leno? I believe the official line was Leno wished to continue Carson's boycott out of respect to Johnny Carson and very little respect to Joan Rivers. And there was nothing personal as such, but essentially it was Leno more or less following in the footsteps of Carson rather than anything in particular. I'd be interested to know if Joan Rivers had ever appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman post-93 in that case. I believe Joan Rivers certainly has been on Letterman in recent years, but once again, something else we'll have to look into. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking that, again, if it's a respect to Johnny Carson, then I suspect that Letterman would also sort of... I mean, it's different set of circumstances because we're not talking about The Tonight Show, but nevertheless, I think that if Joan Rivers had suddenly turned up on the first night of The Late Show for David Letterman, that would have been a bit awkward. And of course, Johnny Carson did appear with David Letterman, was it two years? Or so was it about, I think, was it a couple of years after he left the Tonight Show? I think was it 1994 when Johnny Carson appeared with David Letterman? He made, that was his final appearance on any of the late night shows, wasn't it? And soaked up his time on the desk. He sat there, <laughs> yes. soaked it in, and then left. I didn't say anything. It was a silent appearance. I believe that was 96. Right. I think. So there's another ad break, and we have an animated codec advert regarding the Ugly Duckling with a lovely, slightly clunky tag of. Your prince will live happily ever after. (laughs) And the second advert features a man, I believe from Santo Domingo, being translated by a voiceover, still with an accent, advertising Dutch Master Cigars. And I'm not saying there is any reason why he shouldn't have an accent, but it's just that slight element of, well, we don't know what he's saying, but just so you capture the essence of what he's saying, we'll dub him over with someone who has the accent of someone who can speak English. from Santo Domingo. That's generally the implication. Dutch Master's Cigars is what is advertised following that. So we come back from the break, and they talk about raising kids, and this is in relation to Joan Rivers' new book, which at the time she says due out in six months, which it wasn't in the end. It didn't actually come out until 1974, and it was called Having a Baby Can Be a Scream, and sort of a self-help humour book in the vein of Dr. Benjamin Spock, who sort of wrote the handbook to babies and there's a line amidst all of this where johnny says you're too thin and jonathan sloman mentioned to me in regards to this that this is what made their relationship perfect because usually as illustrated by johnny's reaction when i won't give away the gag but joan responds in such a way that is a punchline and johnny laments not lining it up for her he says i should have referred to you no longer being fat as opposed to now being thin And Jonathan mentioned that this emphasizes the special relationship they had where Johnny was great at lining up the gags for the punchlines to exist, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it comes back to, again, Carson having respect for his fellow performers and never feeling threatened, never feeling threatened if somebody comes out with an absolute beaut of a punchline. He's not sitting there like Hank Kingsley would be, for example, if that was him. Yeah. The way that he would react to something like that. He 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 really does seem to enjoy it when his guests not only go down well with the audience as guests, 
but he enjoys them as performers in their own right. And they don't always have to simply be on the couch to make him look good. And throughout this interview, Johnny clearly has this giddy joy in him. It's wonderful to see that enthusiasm with this guest and that he's genuinely elated to have someone this quick-witted and entertaining on the show. And Joan references Heidi Abramowitz, which, if I'm not mistaken, is her sort of loose woman alter ego persona. And at this point, she'd written, I believe, a book about Heidi Abramowitz and had mentioned her many times in her routine. Now, Heidi Abramowitz was a character created by Joan Rivers to channel a particular alter ego of hers. Gary, what are your thoughts on characters on shows? Now, this isn't Joan Rivers playing a character. But it's her and Johnny and perhaps some of the audience, not all of the audience I would have thought, but some of the audience perhaps being in on the joke where she's talking about a character as if it was a real person and making jokes about them. And Johnny's, oh, well, I'm sure Heidi doesn't appreciate you saying that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. You do get performers who are out and out character comedians. And then, of course, I mean, the one name that springs to mind in the UK as far as someone who made a virtue of having this sort of cast of characters that he could introduce into his routines as Larry Grayson, because he had this whole sort of wealth of all these different names that he would refer to, and these were all sort of composites made up of people that his mother knew, because, as he said, his household was the only one in the street that had a phone, so all the neighbours would come in to make and receive calls. And he would overhear these conversations. And from there, he would then start to come up with these comic personas and then give them characteristics and give them a background and, and so on and so on. So, yeah, I mean, that that's a, it's an interesting approach. I mean, some comedians, for example, if you're a satirist, then you're going to go after real people. If you, for example, specialize in self-deprecating humor, then your target's principally going to be yourself. You could go down the sort of the observational route, I suppose. You could say perhaps like the Victoria Wood route, which is simply pointing out characteristics in different people without actually necessarily coming up with personas for them. Uh, and of course, that's the kind of thing that now you get people like Michael McIntyre doing as well. But yeah, I mean, everybody's got their own sort of different approach. And I would certainly say that this approach is preferable to somebody who is just going on doing gags about public figures because after a while that gets a little bit tiresome and i don't know i don't think that particularly endearing quality if if most of your materials aimed at other people so it's quite nice actually it's quite a nice approach it's quite a nice device to use whereby you may be making gangs about other people but you're not hurting their feelings because they're probably even if they're the butt of the joke unwittingly they're probably saying i know somebody just like that and that's not to say, of course, that guests in character, like, of course, Dame Edna Everidge, who had Joan Rivers on their show years later. Not to say that those kind of characters aren't effective. And, of course, highly welcome on guest shows. It certainly, on talk shows, it certainly makes a difference. So the Joan Rivers interview continues, and there's an element of risque humour. There's references to Aristotle Onassis. There's midgets involved, which she goes back to primarily to tell a 
long-standing gag. Is it a gag, though? I can't tell. Apparently, it is a real anecdote. She talks about her agent, Irving, and legitimately says true story several times regarding the premiere of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs Disney film in 1939, saying that they hired dwarfs to play at the marquee, and they got very drunk and aggressive. And I did try looking this up, and I couldn't find any implication that this happened. And I can only think that if I investigate the New Yorker archives of 1939, maybe this might pop up. But I am intrigued to see if that actually happened. I'd like to think that happened. Very strange circumstance. But Joan Rivers leaves early because she has to go to a film premiere for Young Winston. And this was on a few weeks ago, is that right? It was actually, yeah, I got a repeat on BBC Two a few weeks ago, but actually it's probably best known, as far as television screenings are concerned, it's best known for being what was on opposite the shows that everyone was watching. Christmas Night 1977, Bruce Forsyth and the Generation Game, Mike Yarwood Christmas Show, Eric and Ernie's Christmas Show that had half the population watching. The premiere of Young Winston was actually what was on in opposition on ITV. I need to see this. It actually sounds like a really good film. You have Robert Shaw, Anne Bancroft, Simon Ward, Jack Hawkins, Ian Holm, Anthony Hopkins, Patrick McGee, Edward Wood was John Mills, and that's just the top billing. It's kind of a big deal. I think I might have to see this. Have you seen it? It's quite, yes, it, it, I've not seen it, no. I, I mean, I've heard good things about it. It's quite an epic, and it's, yes, I think it's, it's quite highly regarded. It's a Richard Attenborough film from, I think, yeah, 1972, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, wow. Well, that's, I need to see that. And, do you wonder about that, though? Just to take a point back on this, Joan Rivers going to a premiere. This is in Los Angeles, and she's obviously touring, but I'm guessing it must have been something that her agent must have tied in when she happened to be in Los Angeles, because she's it's already been said she's going to Beverly Hills and she's going to Vegas. It always makes me wonder as to how that works in terms of which celebrities should appear at which premieres, but I guess it's just down to the agents, I suppose. I guess so. I mean... We're used these days to these kind of things being very much full-scale publicity dues where, you know, the person is all over TMZ and they're all over, like, E-Network and so on. And I guess that in its own way, on a slightly smaller scale, it was exactly the same then. And you'd be, it'd give you a chance to for the actors and the actresses to show off their attire and what have you and be on the red carpet and their picture would be in glossy magazines and what have you. So, yes, I guess that it, it was something that was sought after then, as I guess it is now. Although I would say that in terms of the UK culture, in regards to celebrity appearances, I don't think we take enough advantage of that. I find that, certainly in regards to London, where you have premieres, often midweek, in Leicester Square, of various films, talk shows and generally opportunities to ascertain interviews on primetime television in the UK are really not made full use of, and more so not made use of by cinemas and places that events can be held. And, for example, Crispin Glover. Now, he's not a huge name, but he's been touring around the UK, and not one radio interview, not even one television appearance, which, to be fair, if one considers how many channels there actually are now, it's inexcusable not to have at least a focus on an independent director, an alternative actor, a film that may or may not get the reviews or the exposure it deserves necessarily. And I think that may be something of a catalyst as to 
populist cinema, populist television, that certainly in the UK we don't take full advantage of when the stars come over here, when the actors, when the actresses, when the directors and the musicians come over here, and it's just bad publicity. There's just no middle person to say, oh, well, how about Oliver Stone's in town? Why don't we get him to go do a talk at this cinema? And which is why when you go to Los Angeles, you can end up at an event where Kirk Douglas and Sidney Poitier and Lily Tomlin and Tim Conway are all in one room because they live in the area. So surely it should be a heightened emphasis to publicists and agents and the like to perhaps take advantage of where they are. And it is disappointing that you don't get enough celebrities coming over to the UK and being given that opportunity. Perfect example, Aaron Paul, known as Jesse in Breaking Bad, is someone who has recently come over to the UK to accept a BAFTA. I don't know how it works. I don't know if they are aware of that in advance, but to travel that far and not receive a BAFTA would probably have been a bit of an issue. But nevertheless, Breaking Bad won a BAFTA and Aaron Paul was there to accept it. And yet here we are, the most exposure, aside from the genius of Aaron Paul being such a kind-hearted chap that he'll be going, I happen to be at the National Theatre this evening, come say hi. Aside from that, we don't see any example of a talk show or anything else take advantage of the fact that Aaron Paul's in town. Why not have a conversation with him on public radio or television in the UK? Completely missed. And it is mildly disconcerting that the most we got in this particular situation was Aaron Paul having a photo with Ian Beale from EastEnders at the BAFTAs. That was the most we got. It doesn't get much bigger than that. That's the tragedy. It doesn't get much bigger than that. (laughs) And I mean, the only thing I would say, I don't have any evidence to contradict what you're saying, but the only thing I'd suggest is that it may well be that the slightly lesser known celebrities are interviewed when they come here. They may get opportunities to sit down and chat and whatever it may be on things like, for example, BBC local radio, or they may do bits and pieces on a channel like Sky Arts, for example. But I suspect what you're getting at is that there isn't anything quite as high profile as the late night talk show in the States. And so because that's such a popular shop window, then when those people appear on those shows, I mean, they're being... Well, give me an example. I mean, it's not a like-for-like, obviously, in terms of content, but in terms of exposure, I would say that when you get an American celebrity come here, if they're an A-lister, they're most likely to appear on something like Graham Norton or Jonathan Ross. Alternatively, they may well turn up on something like The One Show, which is not necessarily the first place that you would look for someone like that, but... Again, that's quite often a place where you do see sort of visiting celebrities and so on, but it's not quite as high profile. We don't really have anything in the UK which is an identical like-for-like comparison to the 1130 talk show. The most we have nearest to that would be the Late Late Show in Ireland, who have quite a fair number of high-profile celebrities, because, well, aside from the fact that they've been running since the 60s, they take advantage of the fact that someone's turned up and made the effort to come and premiere a film or promote a film or a TV show in Ireland. And I think we take that for granted in the UK. I think we take that for granted in London, for sure. And it's frustrating that there's not enough effort put into bringing 
the medium and the persona together that there's enough opportunity to bring these elements together and it's never really fully taken advantage of because despite the fact that it's convenient it's the fact that they don't take advantage of right time right place anymore i just find that quite frustrating but before we move on to the musical act of this show the bgs i think we should take a few more moments to consider the connecting point of this episode. Peter Cook, as we spoke before, was with Joan Rivers on the 1986 show Can We Talk for the UK. The Bee Gees, best known in terms of their talk show involvement in the UK, is when they went on an episode of Clive Anderson Talks Back in 1997, and about 10 minutes into the interview, they walk off stage. And initially, Clive Anderson thinks this is a joke, and then he looks quite upset at the fact that they've walked off the set. And this becomes quite a big thing, and in terms of UK talk show history, it's quite a prominent moment. And only four years previously, you had Peter Cook coming on, dominating the show, and appearing throughout the show as four different characters. And a lot of people considered this to be something of a comeback after a lull and to see him reappear and re-emerge as these characters and perform a wonderful example of improvisation was very significant especially when you consider the fact that Joan Rivers appeared on the show the same year is relevant but the fact that you have the Bee Gees, Peter Cook, Joan Rivers there's this whole connection everything connects Clive Anderson this show is kind of a weird algorithm in the whole world of talk shows when one considers Peter Cook and his rise and his fall and his slight rise again before he died in 94. I really hope that we get the opportunity to have a look at Can We Talk with Joe Rivers and Peter Cook. And if anyone has any full shows, we'd be more than happy to have a look at them and talk about them. Definitely, yes. So as we move into the Bee Gees, now you and I both agree we're not really fans of the Bee Gees. We're not saying we don't like them, we just don't know a huge amount of them without actually making the consistent effort to actually read about their lives. We're not interested in their music. We're not really fans of the Bee Gees. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I'd say that was fair. I mean, my knowledge of the Bee Gees is pretty much limited to their work with Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, which I guess is how I suppose most people know them. But as you mentioned to me off air before, even before they were on Johnny Carson's show in 72, they'd been around for what was it, about 15 years before then? And this is five years before Saturday Night Fever. They formed in 1958. So there's no doubt they had quite a career. And the only thing I would take issue with is that you said that in terms of talk show appearances, they're best known in the UK for the Clive Anderson incident. I'd actually say that they're best known for appearing with Lorraine Kelly on GMTV the day after, and they had a lovely chat and everything was fine. No one remembers that. Every time I go looking for that in the polls, no, never never shows up. It's always Bee Gees, Clive Anderson, Oliver Reed, Michael Aspel, George Best, Terry Wogan. Never see Bee Gees having a quiet chat with Lorraine Kelly. Never shows up in any of the polls. And I always vote for it. Yeah, well, in that respect, and that is definitely something we've got to talk about. Oliver Reed's appearances on talk shows has to be covered for sure. But as you say, no one remembers the talk shows where Oliver Reed was sober. And it's the same with the Bee Gees. Of course, they're not going to remember a nice general conversation where they promote their album and walk off as intended at the time expected. That that wouldn't be memorable. It's perhaps intrinsical 
to chat show culture in the UK as opposed to talk show culture in the US, that we only remember the notorious, the infamous moments of chat shows in the UK, whereas in the States you have a culture where it embraces appearances that work on the merits of the performances, or at the moment, Jimmy Fallon. Viral performances, performances by actors and actresses and comedians and musicians that can be wrapped up and delivered to the YouTube audience and clicked on millions of times. That's a real big difference between us cynics over in the UK and the culture of the US, where it's a community where talk show is a real landmark, long-standing medium in television. So, yes, I I understand what you mean, that talk shows in America, as opposed to chat shows in the UK, we don't remember the good times. We merely sneer at the bad times. And that's, to be fair, it's not to say that the Clive Anderson BG's appearance is a bad interview. But then again, Clive Anderson isn't there to really have a conversation with his guests. It's there to kind of throw a banter out and see if they're willing to play tennis and in the Bee Gees case they weren't that appearance seemed to me to be perhaps a breakdown in communication between the agents for the Bee Gees and the booker for Clive Anderson because I don't know if any kind of promise was sort of made to them that they were going to be treated with a certain amount of respect or anything like that that they felt was due to them but it just wasn't the type of show that it was. I mean, Clive Anderson is a very witty, quick-witted ex-stand-up comic, of course, an ex-barrister, and that's what he does. I mean, he engages in fast-paced repartee, and sometimes, for example, he'll have somebody like a like a Jeffrey Archer or somebody like that who'll try and pit their wits against them and doesn't always come off too well, and... Yes, I mean, it's just that that's exactly what you expect with him. And, and you know, I mean, if you are the Bee Gees agent, then you know what the difference is going to be between, I mean, a jest, but I mean, you know what the difference is going to be between the Clive Anderson interview and then Lorraine Kelly the next day. You know exactly what it's going to be like. You know how it's going to go before you even start it. So it is a bit of an oddity that they found themselves in that position. And I mean, it's just that always a, it's a sense I've always got with Barry Gibbs. I've just got the, the sort of impression that he does look like somebody who is not going to be shy about making his feelings known if he's not happy about a situation. Even though he's always got that sort of fixed grin, that fixed smile on his face, he does seem to me to be somebody who has got a relatively a little bit short temper. I don't think that's quite the right expression. He's not somebody who would get overtly angry, but I don't think that he's somebody who would sit there and take any nonsense, as he saw. I always perceived Barry Gibbs, especially when I rewatched that 1997 interview with Clive Anderson, as Don Simpson meets Robert Lindsay. <laughs> and this is at a point in their career where they are promoting their 10th album, To Whom It May Concern. As it happens, although they arguably peaked with Saturday Night Fever soundtrack to the film later on in the 70s, in terms of the span of their career, this was about their halfway point. They, as of this moment, produced 12 more albums. And they go on stage and they perform Living in Chicago, two guitars, three voices, all quite somber, especially after Joan Rivers being quick on the draw, quick on the draw, you get this quite somber downer of a song living in Chicago. 
primarily, I'd imagine, picked because it references Chicago, as opposed to it necessarily having any relevance to anything in particular. It was just the fact that living in Chicago, oh, we're in America. And they all join Johnny on the set and get into a conversation. You have Barry in the red shirt, noticeable on the fact that he more or less wears the same red shirt in the 1997 interview. Do we know whether it is the same red shirt? I'd like to think that it was. I think that the 1972 appearance, it's a slightly more maroon shirt. So maybe it's just worn, well worn by 97. Who knows? Robin Brown Top, he's the one sitting in the middle when they performed Living in Chicago. Then you have Barry in the red shirt and Morrison wearing all blue. And they get them on the set and they refer to the Angry Brigade. And they talk about how the albums of theirs come out in the US before anywhere else. And they were competing with the Osmonds in regards to the tour of that year. The Osmonds are touring in 72 as well, which is where Johnny mentions Donny Osmond from the Pepsi generation to the something generation, which I believe to the Coke generation might be what was blanked out, what you mentioned previously. Now, hang on. If they had to blank it out, should we blank it out as well? No, <laughs> because as far as I'm aware, Coke generation was more of a reference to a brand. Well, we mean, we mean Coca-Cola, of course. That's what we mean. Yeah, not cocaine. Oh, you didn't need to spell it out, for goodness sake. I mean... I'd like to think that perhaps 42 years on, it really isn't an issue whether Donny Osmond may or may not have taken coke, to be honest. Well, let's be clear. Let's put this on the record. We have no evidence that Donny Osmond has ever taken coke. That's clear enough, isn't it? So that, that guess is off the hoop. Yeah, he was more of a Pepsi person. We cannot prove it, is what we're saying. We cannot prove that he ever drank Coke, that he was more of a Pepsi fan. And Johnny Carson's accusation that it went from the Pepsi generation to the Coke generation, that he started drinking Coke on a massive level over Pepsi. When you say massive level, I mean, do you mean like he would have like bottles of it one after the other in such a way that he would be effectively doing, you know, if they were all sort of lined up together, he'd be doing a line of Coke, is what you mean? Just a can a day, nasally or orally. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe that's how much he liked it. But uh, blame Johnny, not us. So, with that in mind... Can I just, can I just, put, on the, can I just put on the record, by the way? I'm not worth suing, because I've got fuck all. So, yeah, you, you're wasting time there. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> if anyone would like to create that, that could be the first talk show, talk show t-shirt. I'm not worth suing, because I've got fuck all. <laughs> and if you're offended by the bad language in this podcast... That's why I just left the explicit button on when I uploaded it. So, If Donny Osmond wants to go after me for me suggesting that he might have enjoyed a Coca-Cola every now and then, then all he's going to get... I mean, all I've got in the, of any value in this room that I'm speaking to you from now is a Mike Yarwood VHS commercial release from 1990. And what is that over there? Oh, there's a library book about politics, which is actually overdue. It's got £3.50 fine on it, so if he wants to appropriate that, he will have to take on the, uh, the cost of the fine as well. And beyond that, it's just an empty room. Yes, I'm not even sat down because I've got nothing to sit on. It's just you perched in a wolf floor junction, wrapped around in a ragged blanket. Hang on, now you've got to told Donny Osmond that I've got a blanket. He's going to add that to the list now. Well, horses for courses. Or should I say... I've got no horses. That was never proved. Or should I say crazy horses for courses? Hey... Indeed. So, they mention communism, which just seems like a casual thing to bring up, that they're going to China and communists, and this is very much the era of the communism. And then, 
they mention a particular UK talk show host. Michael Parkinson. Indeed. People can go to our Facebook page, the Talk Show Talk Show Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com forward slash talk show podcast. And by the time this is up, you'll be able to have a look at the articles regarding Parkinson's view, especially by the early 80s, his view on Johnny Carson. And it's just a nice little moment where worlds collide. And as far as I'm aware, and if anyone else can confirm otherwise, Parkinson and Carson never cross paths in real life. Is that right? Would you agree with that, as far as we're aware? I've got no knowledge of that ever happening. I know that one or two British celebrities were on the Johnny Carson show over the years. Huey Greeden was on the show, for example, but I'm not aware of any meeting or crossover between Michael Parkinson and Johnny Carson. The only country that I know of where Michael Parkinson you know, did his shows outside of the UK, the straightforward talk show, was in Australia. Yes. But no, I'm not aware of any meeting between the two. And that's another reason why this particular episode is really quite a big deal in terms of one that we've watched for the show, because let's lay this out. We're only perhaps two-thirds of the way through the show, and yet here we are. We have examples of two guests relevant in the bigger scheme of things to the world of talk shows, Joan Rivers and the Bee Gees. We have all the Tonight Show cliches coming into place, I mean that in a very respectable sense. The high-o and the golf putt and the banter and so forth. And we have the mention of Parkinson on Carson. You have all these elements. You have so many things going on in this show, which makes it so vibrant in the bigger scheme of things, especially if you're, like ourselves, talk show fans. And although this particular interview doesn't necessarily pull much out of the bag, admittedly, we do get a few more adverts in the midst of it. We get... Prior to the interview, Edmund Mann with his chopping board, when it rains, it pours, molten salt, Chicago, Illinois. We get Pepto-Bismol surrounding a political argument over dinner, which is completely relevant, given that Nixon was re-elected a couple of days before. We have Reynolds' rap in relation to Turkey. Of course, Thanksgiving, we're at that point of the year. Mateus, rosé wine. And we have two adverts for Sears, Kenmore Compactor for Men Who Hate to Be Garbage Men, and The Freedom Maker. Sears Lady Kenmore Dishwasher. So you have all these elements here that kind of add up to this time of the year, something kind of warm about it all. So despite all these ad breaks, making up for the lack of conversation perhaps from the Bee Gees, can you think of any examples of musicians joining a talk show host in an interview and it being consistently good? I mean, of course, there are many, many examples of different musicians performing and then joining talk shows on the sofa for a chat. But aside from the controversial ones, and aside from, for example, Cher being on Late Night with Letterman and calling him an asshole, and I'm saying that in the accent that she gave on the night, can you think of any moments where a musician is brought back onto a show, not for necessarily their music, but more so for their banter? I think that you do get some... You do get some musicians who are just particularly witty. Well, one that springs to mind is not quite a comfortable interview, but it's a memorable one, is The Who, appearing with Russell Harty. And they sort of have a bit of fun with the format because you know, they start asking questions of him and you know, they don't take him entirely seriously, but it's all relatively good-natured. It's not a, it's not a sort of Sex Pistols, Bill Grundy type of thing. And... Nowadays, you, you do get 
certain people. I mean, just recently I saw Michael Bublé on, I think it was Graham Norton, and he seemed very relaxed and at ease with just being a performer, as opposed to sometimes you do get some musicians who are sort of not necessarily entirely comfortable. I just saw a clip of Elvis Costello on Fantasy Football League from a few years back. And again, I mean, he's somebody, of course, who appeared on Larry Sanders' show a couple of times. And appeared as something of a tearaway. Well, yes, he left the uh, the green room in a worse state than Angela Lansbury, famously. But, yes, yeah, so again, he was just somebody who seemed sort of quite comfortable and just comfortable chatting as himself. Whereas you, you, you get some musicians who they are more comfortable when they're performing and they don't have a great deal to say as themselves. But I suspect that there are certain people, for example, that you will see on talk shows who only appear on talk shows when they do have something to promote. And even then, sometimes it might be very occasionally. I mean, one person, not a musician, one person that I remember being surprised to see on Parkinson a few years ago was Rowan Atkinson. And it took me a little while before I twigged that he was there to promote Johnny English cinemas. And he's not somebody, even when you see like documentaries about, for example, say a documentary about Blackadder, for example, unless it's one which has got everybody involved from Richard Curtis onwards, then quite often someone like Rowan Atkinson is, is not someone that you see interview at all. And it's an interesting an interesting issue. We're sort of we're moving towards Rob Reiner's appearance. But Actors appearing on talk shows is an interesting area because, strangely enough, actors sometimes are the people who are least at ease with being interviewed. For example, Christopher Lloyd on Wogan, who could barely utter a single word. And this is not the case with, for example, somebody like Chevy Chase, who, again, was obstinate, but that was more because he's not really an ad-libber. And I saw Will Ferrell on a chat show recently, and he was thrown into a situation where he was being required to ad-lib, and he looked very uncomfortable with it. I'd never seen a bad Will Ferrell appearance. This was when he was on Graham Norton's show on New Year's Eve, just past, and he was there with the, the whole of the Anchorman crew. And, I mean, he didn't start sweating profusely or anything like that, but they started doing some bits and pieces with the audience. And Graham Norton would go in and he would, like, get a few details from the audience and then throw back to Will Ferrell to give a headline in the style of Ron Burgundy. And by the end of it, he was really drying up. And it was quite obvious that he just wasn't really comfortable doing that kind of thing. Whereas you get, for example, some actors who... It's not so much that they, that they don't feel comfortable ad-living, it's just that they don't feel comfortable being themselves. One that springs to mind is Warren Clark when he appeared on, I think it was the very first episode of The Kumars at number 42. And even though that was a partially scripted, partially ad-libbed show, I remember him being just almost mute. Because he, he just, for whatever reason, he just was not comfortable being himself at all. And yet he's a brilliant actor. And if you were casting him in a role in which he had to play a character who was on chat show, it would be perfect at it. Of course he would. But some people just don't like being themselves. Ronnie Barker was like that. I mean, he actually said it to Ronnie Corbett once when they had to go out as themselves on the Royal Variety performance. He said, I don't feel comfortable being myself. And Ronnie Corbett said, well, be a character called Ronnie Barker then. And it's, it's a strange way of sort of approaching things, but some people are like that. There are certain there are certain actors who I can't remember ever seeing being interviewed. I can't remember. I know he's done it once to promote the Biderbeck tapes, but I've got no recollection of ever seeing James Bolam, for example, being interviewed on any of the talk shows that we've seen. 
And you tend to get, for example, sometimes you'll tend to get people like, say, Roger Moore, for example, when he's been interviewed, it's usually going to be to promote something like his work with UNICEF or something like that. It's going to be something big. It's not going to be that he's just there as a run-of-the-mill guest because, you know, just some people just don't enjoy that kind of thing. And we'll be talking about signature guests on talk shows in the near future and how you have certain guests always brought back, always reappearing, whether they've got anything to promote or not, but they're there as a friend of the show. The likes of Don Rickles, Bill Murray, Joan Rivers for a period of time, Jerry Bishop, and many others made many appearances. Uh, one that's been to mind is Regis Philbin with David Letterman, of course. Perhaps bringing this full circle before we move on to Rob Reiner. Musician, potentially acting in some parts, and appearing on a show, maybe being himself maybe not being himself, it's never really too clear, but it works, is Tom Waits appearing on the parody chat show, Fernwood Tonight. Mm -hmm. And the premise being that his coach broke down on the way to the fictional town of Fernwood, and he's reluctantly appearing on the show, and he comes out with some amazing lines. And as far as Martin Mull's concerned, the host of Fernwood Tonight... Tom Waits improvised for the most part, and he pulls out a bottle of Jack Daniels and starts swigging at it. Martin Mull goes, oh, it's unusual sort of seeing people drink on set here. And Tom Waits comes out with the immortal line, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. Hey. And that's perfect. And Martin Mull's clearly thrilled when he says that. <laughs> and I'd like to think that Tom Waits just went on there and threw out this improvisation he just he came up with some wonderful lines and i think he's an example of someone put him in the right situation and he just does wonders with the situation he's put in the bg's not so much i can't think of many musical guests who have really stood out in terms of their appearances that's not to say we won't be talking about arguably the fad of musicians getting their own talk shows or variety shows such as Lulu and Shirley Bassey, Scylla Black. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean they're the best guests. Does it even necessarily mean they're the best hosts? But that's something we'll be looking into further down the line. An interesting detail for one of those shows, when Tom Jones was recording such a series in the late 1960s, it was shot twice at the same time. This is absolutely true. It was shot with both the American standard and with British cameras as well, because it was going to be a transatlantic show. It was going to be one of your low-grade ITC productions. It was going to go out on both sides of the Atlantic. So you had a situation where Tom Jones would speak directly into the colour camera, which was going to be going out in the US, and also to the side of that colour camera was a black-and-white camera for the UK. A real, a real oddity. It was, it was a time where it was around about that time where you've got the UK almost switching to colour, but not quite, and you've still got the old four or five line standard being used by most people, which is why you couldn't just do a straightforward one single take and then convert it from format to format. So yeah, a real, a real oddity. There's not too many shows that I can think of that are like that that have to be shot twice in, a, in effect in one take, but that's the way it was. And do you know which show this was? I believe the show was This Is Tom Jones from the late 1960s. Well, if anyone happens to have a copy of both the British and the American versions, 
and would like to edit it together. So you've got Tom Jones cussing from colour to black and white to colour to black and white. Please do. Actually, you don't need to because somebody's already done it. All you need to do is track down a lovely little three-part Channel 4 documentary from 2002 called The Showbiz Set. And I think it's episode two of that. You'll see Dennis Kirkland, who was later producer-director for Benny Hill, and he was a floor manager on that show, and he talks exactly about that process, and they've actually got the same shot side by side, in colour and black and white, from the two different angles. Well, there you go. The next guest, although once again we don't see their entrance, is Rob Reiner, who at this point was 25 years old, and comes onto the show to promote the record, the LP, of him narrating Peter and the Wolf presumably with the music playing as he tells the story. The only other audiobook as such that I found online of Rob Reiner providing narration was an abridged version of The Princess Bride, which obviously he directed in the 80s and uh, was written by William Goldman. But in regards to actually promoting products on the shows, in terms of when the guests come on and they either have an album or a film or book to promote, Gary, what's your thoughts on Carson's role in that? I mean, later on, in the episode, we see a missed opportunity to promote Dr. Dave Rubin's new book, for example. Yeah, I, I mean, in the examples that we saw in this particular episode, the promotion of the items seems rather more blatant than we're perhaps used to in British chat shows. And the whole business, for example, of having the item on the desk and then simply just holding up to camera to say, there, you've got your shot, there it is, you know what it looks like, and so on. It's sort of perfunctory. It's almost like it's it's sort of accepted in the same way as the live or as live commercials with Ed are an accepted part of the show. Whereas I think at this particular time, if somebody was on, I mean, obviously, slightly different arrangement in Britain, because, of course, if you're on the BBC, you're not really supposed to be plucking the stuff, so they can't be overt about it. But you know how these things work, and so they will sort of bring it into the conversation, hopefully subtly. And... Then, of course, people become wise to this. Then you hear people say, oh, they only appear on these damn chat shows when they've got someone to plug and what have you. Eventually, it becomes a gag. Like when Frank Skinner was doing his shows around about sort of early 2000s and what have you, when somebody would then interject with whatever it was that they were plugging, he would actually have a oversized 13-amp plug appear, come down from the ceiling, as to say, plug! Things are different nowadays, of course, because now we seem to have gone beyond the point where it's now, ho-ho, they're plugging the product, and it's now just sort of accepted. I think we've got to the point now where Carson was 40 years ago, where you know the person's coming on and they've got something to sell, and that's why they're there. That's why you've suddenly got all the pythons on a show together. They're not there just because they fancy turning up for a nice wee chat. You know they've got something to plug. And... Of course, nowadays you have a slightly different situation in the UK that you didn't have before, but you did occasionally see this in American shows and Australian shows quite often with the Australian soaps. So you have product placement allowed. And we're still in this area where it has to be sort of very carefully handled and it has to be very obviously advertised. So when you see the letter P appear Sesame Street style at the beginning of a program, that means there is going to be product placement in this program. And it's something which doesn't necessarily require the viewer to be directed to it. It's not like Carson holding up book or record or whatever it may be. It's just going to be something that's there, it's present, it's visible. And 
it's interesting lately and how we've sort of gone through in different years, different decades, how we've gone through from, first of all, this supposedly being done as sort of a covert thing to then it being more overt. Then it's ironic, supposedly, and now it's just accepted. It's interesting to see on this particular episode as well, Joan Rivers, she has got a book coming out. She says at the time in about six months, but it ends up being over a year or so. But essentially her plug, as it were, for this episode was her touring dates. You have the Bee Gees, new album coming out, their 10th album, which is for the most part promoted by the fact that they perform songs from it. You have Rob Reiner, who, although the album is there and Johnny holds it up, he also talks about his acting gig with All in the Family and the fact that the next two episodes are written by himself and Phil Mishkin, which we'll get back to shortly. And then you have Dr. David Rubin, who is promoting his latest book, having already gained a name for himself with everything you've always wanted to know about sex but was afraid to ask. Although, amusingly, Johnny Carson does miss the opportunity to actually plug the book in question. He picks it up just as the credits roll and misses the opportunity, which I think they both kind of jest about. So, yeah, it, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, where it's a very relaxed atmosphere. It, the promotion essentially becomes secondary. It's still important, but it becomes secondary to casual conversation and anecdotes. And I think that's certainly beneficial because it puts aside the this is just an advertisement element to it and brings forth the personas as opposed to, ah, well, you know, here he is to promote a new album, here he is to promote a new book, here she is to go on tour, and gives it a whole new angle. And in terms of Rob Reiner, although he's in theory there to promote the album, there's not a huge amount to say necessarily on a late night talk show in 1972 about Peter and the Wolf. So they more or less go straight into the anecdotes, which, as it turns out, certainly in retrospect, relate to the forthcoming episodes of All in the Family at the time. I'm just interject at this point because I think that's an interesting area that you've hit upon. I don't think it's necessarily that there isn't a lot to say about Peter and the Wolf. I think that if that was the structure of the interview, if that's what had been arranged beforehand, and they'd said to Rob Reiner, we're going to have you on specifically to talk about this recording of Peter and Wolf that you've done, then he would do so. I mean, he'd have all like the sort of the blurb, the preparation from the promotion company and so on, and he'd go on and he'd talk about as much as he wanted him to talk about it. You know, I recorded it here. Had you, you know, Were you familiar with the story beforehand? And what did you try and add to the story? What did you yourself try and bring to the story with your, with your voice, with your uh, vocal talents and so on? And, and are you hoping to do more of these kind of things and so on and so on and so on? The thing is that you've got this balance that needs to be struck. The promo company, the reason that Rob Reiner's on the program is to plug that album. But the Carson people know that when you see the listing of that evening and you see Rob Reiner's name, automatically you're going to think, oh, that's Rob Reiner from TV's All in the Family. And if he then goes on and doesn't mention All in the Family at all and just starts talking about this other product that he's got, then you could potentially lose interest. So you've got to strike this balance as a producer between giving the product that they want to plug sufficient airtime, maybe have a couple of perfunctory questions about it initially, and then you get it out of the way done that bit now and now we're actually going to talk about the stuff that we wanted to talk about in the first place so you see it all the time when you know you get you know just come up with a hypothetical you get person x and they're famous for say 
say they're like a sketch comedian and they're famous for one particular sketch in particular and it's the one they always get asked about again and again and again and now they've decided to branch out and they're going to become a serious offer for example unless the program happens to be something like you know the south bank show or something like that if it's going to be something like the one show they're going to come along and they're going to say oh person x uh we know you from this but i believe that you've you've now uh gone off on a new venture yes i've written this book and they'll chat about the book as for as little possible time as they can and then they're going to go back to talking about what it is that that person's known for because that's the audience's expectations that's what they're you know that that's what the audience wants from that performer they you know they want what they're used to so it doesn't really surprise. I think. I think. Yeah. If they'd asked Rob Ryder just to talk about Peter and the Wolf, he could have done it, of course. But probably would have been a sort of stilted conversation. I would have looked more like the kind of interviews that you see when, like, a film star's got a film to promote. The kind of interviews that turn up in, you know, like promotional puff pieces. You know, the kind of like assembled clip shows. I mean, we don't have it anymore, but things like movies, games, and videos, things like that. The kind of interviews that would turn up in there. They're going to be very direct and to the point. I am here to talk about this and nothing else, and there you are. And, of course, if you're a chat show booker and a producer, that's really not what you want. Although I wouldn't deny that there's certainly things to talk about with Peter and the Wolf, I would say that probably within that atmosphere, and as you say, with Rob Reiner as well in, in particular, it probably wouldn't have necessarily suited the mood or the tone of the late-night talk show, or specifically the Tonight Show. In contrast to, say, Dr. David Rubin, where it's a more broad dialogue, perhaps, about sexuality and so forth, whereas with Peter and the Wolf, it's a particular cultural artifact to get your teeth into and perhaps is a little bit niche to cover. Whereas, of course, All in the Family, third season, and although he wasn't necessarily on there to promote All in the Family, the next two episodes that were to air after this evening, November the 9th, 1972, were both co-written by Rob Reiner and alongside Phil Mishkin. Now, Rob Reiner and Phil Mishkin had only written one episode previously in season one, which was a flashback episode as to when Archie met Mike, a.k.a. Rob Reiner's character. The two episodes that air after this Tonight Show episode aired are a two-parter written by Reiner and Mishkin, and are also flashback episodes in which we see the wedding of Mike to Gloria. So in terms of what we know now, where Rob Reiner really more or less got involved with everything further down the line, directing, producing, charitable causes and so forth, it's interesting to see that evolution take place, especially when one considers that these were actually the last two episodes that Rob Reiner was involved in writing for All in the Family. In fact, the character of Mike was meant to star in a spin-off in 1982 with Sally Struthers called Gloria, which was going to be about them and their son. But Rob Reiner declined, and they tailed off this long-standing character who'd been on air for, or would have been on air at this point for 10 years or so, by writing him out of the proposed idea. And the implication is, is that he's run off with another woman and Mike and Gloria are actually going through a bit of divorce, and he never actually appears in the spin-off. And of course, at this point, Rob Reiner, 1982, this is entering into... He's already had some directing experience at this point, but he's leading towards This Is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me. So I do find it quite strange that 
a beloved character as such because of declining his involvement is is written out in such a derogatory way. I don't want to turn this into the sitcom club all of a sudden, but yes, it is an interesting area that you sometimes have characters written out in convoluted circumstances because an actor has declined to appear in another series. So quite often, a particular character will suddenly go to Australia. That's always a good one. Because it means that they can then pretend to speak to them on the telephone very occasionally, but otherwise they're not there and that explains their absence. And yeah, if if it's gone badly and there's been harsh falling out between parties, then you can have a situation where... Okay, well, the worst possible situation of all would be, for example, the way that Isaac Hayes was written out of South Park, for example. And in the case of Rob Reiner declining the spin-off, I mean, as you say, he had other irons in the fire by this point, so I'm not so sure that he was necessarily overly worried about his position in All in the Family. But there was a case a few years earlier of a spin-off not only not really working, but also having an effect on the people who were in it. And that was that the characters of the Ropers, uh, who we know in the UK as George and Mildred, were given their own spin-off series from... Freeze Company, which would require them to be written out of Freeze Company. And one of the characters, one of the actors was in favour, the other one wasn't, and took some convincing and they said to them, look, if the series does not work, then we'll get you back into Freeze Company. And what happened is that there was one series of the Ropers, and then a second series of the Ropers, which was then cancelled, but as per the agreement, because it had gone beyond one series, then their window of opportunity to get back into the main series had closed. And of course then there was somebody else installed in the main show which ran for about five years. So it is always a risk when a spin-off is put to you that you want to make sure that if it doesn't work out that you're guaranteed your spot in the main show because if they write you out in such a way that it doesn't leave any way for you to come back then, well, you're, you're snookered. But then, you know, if you follow the uh, the sort of the, the Dallas or Dynasty route, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you were smashed into smithereens by a bulldozer, then you could just come back anyway. It was all a dream. Well, yeah, and it's not to say, of course, that the atmosphere was tense or indeed bitter between Rob Reiner declining and the writers going, let's write him out. I mean, to be fair, in episodes of All in the Family, towards the end of its run, before the various spin-offs, they were not series regulars, Sally Struthers or Rob Reiner. So the two episodes in which we saw them last together were Christmas episodes, if I'm not mistaken, or holiday episodes. And the heavy implication was that their marriage is in trouble at this point. So in that respect, it did have a natural progression towards that. And it made sense, but it just seems bleak, perhaps, I suppose, for that era. But then again, that's what All in the Family was about. It covered all real life issues in a humorous way, as a good sitcom should. Yeah, as you say, as far as the actual show itself is concerned, it's not an absurd situation to suddenly come up with. It would be if it was something more sort of twee, if it was more sort of, uh, you know, if it was maybe like one of your sort of 1950s, 1960s stereotypical American sitcoms. And everything, I mean, the worst thing that ever happens is that the main character's boss is going to come round for dinner and, oh, you know, we haven't got any clean napkins or something like that. And then suddenly if that character is then revealed to be an adulterer and is scarpered, it does somewhat change the tone a little bit. And I suppose it was part and parcel of All in the Family and 
other shows that Norman Lear was involved in in some capacity, which all have that element of this is real life, this is how it works, divorce happens, people die, people are born, etc. And it works, it does work. And just to touch momentarily on the Australia reference you made there, it's also interesting that you have the likes of Archie Bunker's counterpart, Alf Garnet, going to Australia as part of the series, in the same way that John Inman goes off to Australia in Are You Being Served in Australia? That's something that we will no doubt talk about more extensively one day on the other podcast, which is hosted by yourself, The Sitcom Club. Well, it's happened many times, of course. You've had the Doctor series, Robin Nedwell and Jeffrey Davis go off to Australia. You had Jack Smethurst sort of reprising his role in Love My Neighbour in Australia. And you had Patrick Cargill, who went down under for Follow Dear Father as well. So, yeah, it's quite a common thing, particularly late 1970s. It's quite a common situation where the Australian networks are used to showing British shows. And when the British show comes to an end, then the Australian network's quite keen for the shows to continue. So they then transplant the character over there. And it has happened the other way as well. There are some cases of, say, soap operas made in Australia, which have ceased production for Australian TV, but they're kept going for international sales because it proved popular elsewhere. And in regards to All in the Family as a sitcom, and in terms of Rob Reiner's involvement in the writing, it's about experience, we can only assume at this point, because this flashback episode that comes up after November the 9th, 1972, is focusing on the wedding. And that's what Johnny Carson and Rob Reiner talk about, is Rob Reiner's wedding, which took place in Hollywood, in Carl Reiner's garden, in April of 1971, to Penny Marshall and Martin Landau at the wedding told a story a fairy tale story about how Rob Reiner and Penny Marshall had met and I read in an article from the dispatch in July 1971 that there was a comment that appeared to be relatable to the, his character of Mike he has a single suit in which he was married just that was a nice touch and the fact that they'd moved to a San Fernando ranch style home but there's not a huge amount for them to really cover. I didn't find there was much I could extract out of a huge amount of interest in the interview. It didn't extend much beyond the wedding day anecdote. And they talk about their pets as well. Rob Reiner says how they have two cats, Rhoda and Howie. And Carson mentions his dog sucking his paw. Then it more or less just cuts to a, another advert, which covers Revlon Super Rich Eyeshadow and Scott's Liquid Gold. In that order. In that order. And I have nothing really to say about either of those. Now what, is, what, is, what is Scott's Liquid Gold? Even though I've seen the advert, but it's obviously not made much of an impression on me. What is Scott's Liquid Gold? It's for the occasions that you need to have gold made out of liquid. Now, I would assume that those occasions are few and, if I may say so, far between. Not in 1972. <laughs> Disco was upon them. There was a lot of gold needed eventually. I really don't know. I have no idea what one would use liquid gold for on an extensive level to deserve a advertising slot. Maybe because it was near Christmas, perhaps, and it was about having decoration. Right. That's all I can really assume. But presumably these were small little jars. I mean, they weren't like enormous big vats. I don't think they were sort of paint cans. No. 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 It wasn't like a five kilogram drum or anything like that. Wasn't a toxic waste oil drum size. I don't think that Johnny Carson would be associated with anything like that. No. Then again, I don't really picture Johnny Carson running around spraying liquid gold everywhere. <laughs> you realise that's the first time and probably the last that that sentence will ever be said. In the world. <laughs> Next up, we have Dr. David R. Rubin, 
author of Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, published in 1969. And he's on there to promote his new book, Any Woman Can. Of course, it was in the same year, in 1972, that Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask was also a film directed by Woody Allen. And Woody is only referenced once in this interview by Rob Reiner, quoting Woody on his views on sex. But it's interesting that in this interview you have Johnny Carson and Dr. David Rubin bonding over the criticism they've both received on separate occasions from one female journalist, Betty Rollin. In the November 1972 edition of Playboy, there's an article by Betty Rollin titled What Dr. Rubin Doesn't Know About Sex. And in 1966, Betty Rollin wrote an article for Look magazine titled Johnny Carson, the Prince of Chit Chat is a Loner. And it's interesting to note that Carson brings this up almost immediately into the conversation and has a letter from the AMA on hand to prove to the audience at home and indeed in the studio that Dr. David Rubin is a credited psychiatrist, the AMA approve. And that's because in the Playboy article, Rollin discredits him. And what are your views on Carson perhaps using this opportunity to bite back at his critics, specifically Betty Rollin? I think that it's a natural place for him to respond to the article because it would be strange if he was to respond by, say, giving an interview to another journalist and another publication. There's also perhaps an expectation from the people who have read that article that he will respond to it and he will respond to it on his show. It doesn't do the show any harm, of course, because then it potentially boosts ratings as well. The danger is that the number of people who've read the article is probably going to be a lot less than the number of people who are going to see Johnny Carson on that show on that evening. And so by referencing it, he's then giving it publicity. And it may cause then other people to go and seek it out. But yeah, he's perfectly entitled to his right of reply. And if he thinks he's been misrepresented in that article, then you'd expect him to respond. And that tag, the loner, I mean, it's it's usually used in a pejorative sense. And it might just mean, I mean, you, you could also rephrase that and say, he minds his own business and doesn't make a pain in the arse of himself. Uh, and then it would come across as positive, but of course it's all down to the, the sort of the spin that they want to put on it. And it does sort of fit the tired, cliched, by implying loner, then you start thinking, you know, oh, is he actually, is he happy, or is he the sad clown, and what have you. And really, as we know, I mean, Johnny Carson just had his own interests, and he wasn't necessarily somebody who needed to be out partying every evening and he was also happy when it came to his retirement to pretty much leave show business behind and he had other things that he wanted to do with his friends and family so you know good luck to him but yeah no it makes perfect sense that he would respond to it in the way that he does and I think he actually in this instance I think he does it in, in a rather polite way because he corrects the bits and pieces and to do with the doctor of course he then says you know this piece has been written and it's made this statement this is untrue because there's your certificate and so on but he doesn't get into any kind of personal denigration against the journalist herself or against the publications so he handles it in a pretty straight way well he does say something along the lines of i don't believe betty rollin likes men which is quite to the point mm, yeah then again i find the idea that you have these two men on this talk show bonding over criticism they've received from one female journalist as an interesting aspect, especially since this is the last interview of the show. 
There's also a little bit more raciness to it, perhaps. You have Ruben casually knocking Nixon, who was, of course, re-elected two days previously. And Rob Reiner quoting Woody Allen by saying, is sex dirty only if you're doing it right? (laughs) So tongues are a little loose at this point in the evening. Although I would point out, I found it quite interesting that Louise Lasser, who starred in Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, was afraid to ask the Woody Allen film as opposed to the book, would, of course, later down the line, star in the Norman Lear-produced Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman in 1976 to 1977. So you've got this nice little Norman Lear connection with Rob Reiner, with All in the Family, and everything you always wanted to know about sex but was afraid to ask, Louise Lasser, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Of course, that's a connection one can only put together after the fact, but I found it quite nice. So then we go into another advert, and it's cling-free anti-static spray. Of course, there's a lot of fabrics involved around the holiday periods, apparently. And then you get this strange one where it's Maxim Coffey, and it's Patricia Neal, who won the Oscar for Best Actress in 1963 for her role in HUD. And this is at the end of her career, more or less. It's not like she was doing much at the time. So it's an unusual choice, but it's an understandable choice and perhaps almost cliche because that element of here's someone you don't see around that much now doing an advert on TV, which I guess at that point was more gimmicky than it is now. It's more, it's quite natural now to see film stars in television adverts. And in fact, Tony yesterday, Antonio Banderas advertising extra chewing gum, Mm. which did seem odd. I have to say, there's like no connection there. Whereas it might make sense that an Oscar-winning actress might like some coffee. Well, does Antonio Banderas not occasionally chew gum? Well, if he does, he could have kept it to himself. You've got to be careful with chewing gum because he can remove your fillings. I don't know how many fillings, if any, Antonio Banderas has, but you've got to watch them. And also, you've got to watch those caramel-flavoured chocolates that you get from Poundland because that removed my gold filling the other day. Yeah, you don't want to do that. There's a, there's a reason they're in Poundland, to be fair. Well, because... It's basically like eating glue with sugar in it. But good quality glue. Hmm. Did you find liquid gold in there? Well, I didn't find liquid gold in there, but I found my gold filling because that's what came out. Did you have it reinstalled? No, no, not yet. No. I mean, I'm, I'm told by the dentist that they don't actually use gold in fillings these days. It's not the end thing, but that, that was there 20 years ago. So Yeah, so maybe I'll take it down to cash converters or something like that and get whatever it's value is maybe 0.003 pence. Have you put it on ice? No, I think that's mainly for things like severed fingers, but I don't really think it works for fillings. But it is gold. All gold should be put on ice. Should it? Well, liquid gold. Well, okay, so you're saying that if I buy this liquid gold that Johnny Carson's promoting seemingly quite a bit, that the first thing that I've got to then do is tip it out into like one of those trays where you make ice cubes and then put it into the freezer? And make a gold ice cubes. That would, that would go down well at parties. I think they'd come up better than they would go down. But surely that would turn all drinks into gold wasser. You're familiar with gold wasser, aren't you? Oh, yes. Yeah. So that would turn all drinks into gold wasser. And that's not very nice. Well, no, I don't mind gold wasser, actually. I mean, it, it's a bit sort of abrasive, but sometimes that's what you want. Although I think the gold in that is edible, whereas liquid gold is. is chemical and might kill you like um, the person in Goldfinger. Yes. Although... Word of advice, if you do use liquid gold on yourself, keep the spine free of any gold, because that's what killed the woman in Goldfinger. Top fact. So after the break, Carson talks with Dr. David Rubin about extramarital affairs. Now, it's interesting at this point, because in 1948, 
Carson was married to Jodie Walcott and they got a quickie divorce in 63 and he went on to marry Joanne Copeland in 1963. They then divorced in June 1972. So at this point, he is in a position to talk about divorce and infidelities were committed, as far as we're aware, in the first marriage. Second marriage, it's not entirely clear, but nevertheless, they amicably divorced in terms of having Copeland receiving a settlement of $6,000 per month in alimony until she remarried or until Johnny's death, which she received until he died in 2005. And Jodie Walker also received, from what we've been told, a fair art collection that Johnny had uh, procured over the years. But the interesting thing is, this is only a month or so after Carson's Tonight Show 10th anniversary, September the 30th, 1972, where he announced at the party that he and Joanna Holland had been secretly married that afternoon. And the great joke was that Carson joked about marrying three similarly named women to avoid having to change the monogram on the towels. So 1972 for Carson, if we look at the fact that they moved from New York to Burbank, you have Carson divorcing and then remarrying. You have the atmosphere change in general. The attitude I got from the interview with Joe Rivers is that Los Angeles is far more relaxed than New York. And this comes across in the Los Angeles shows in contrast to the New York shows of The Tonight Show. And as we come to the end of this conversation about The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, November the 9th, 1972, Gary, what are your views on how this show represents a Golden Age episode of The Tonight Show? It's certainly, from what I know of The Tonight Show, it certainly seems a representative edition. You've got a nice mix of guests, as we said before. You have Joan Rivers, who starts the show with a high tempo, fast pace, and then as the show progresses, you've got sort of slightly more relaxed conversation, you've got the, the sort of the slow music from the Bee Gees, then things come back up a little bit again with Rob Reiner, and then you've got your sort of academic chap on to conclude. And everything in terms of the, the presentation, the commercials, and the monologue, and so on, it certainly seems like this is a typical episode of The Tonight Show. And it's very, very interesting, like I said right at the outset, it's very interesting to compare just how relaxed it all is in comparison to a modern day Tonight Show, for example, where it seems, I mean, it's working for him, obviously, because it's seemingly what's required, but Jimmy Fallon has to constantly grab the audience's attention at all times. And there really isn't any scope for any kind of lull or any kind of quiet part or anything like that at all. Yes, and I'm glad they chose this episode to put on the official Johnny Carson YouTube channel because, as you say, it's a relaxed atmosphere. It's It has a pace that works. It is enjoyable. It has all the aspects you need. It has a TV actor. It has a doctor. It has a comedian. It has a band. It's got all the nice elements there. It has the monologue at the beginning with banter with both Ed and Doc Severinsen. You have the Tonight Show memes such as hi and the golf putts and... hi I can't replicate the golf putt on an audio, obviously. I can do it, but you won't see it. Well, you can do it anyway if you want. I've just done it. Oh, there you go. I should have switched the webcam on for it. I'd rather you didn't. <laughs> I just feel that would take up a lot of energy and time. 
It would certainly take up a lot of bandwidth. Well, yes. And it would increase the size of the podcast quite significantly to have a small three-second video element in it. So, probably for the best. I wonder if anyone's done that. Sort of where it... where Because I know you can obviously incorporate clips of pictures at various chapters mm-hmm. and things like that. Yep. No time like the present. Let's do the show right here. No. Uh, <laughs> no. So the show ends, the piano plays them out because that's the moment they go, oh, hang on, time's running out, we've got to wrap things up here, much like a Oscars speech, although slightly less aggressive. And the credits roll, and that's an episode, that's the show. It's one of many that we'll be covering, and I'm thinking next time we talk about a show and have a look at all of its aspects, I think we should take a different angle. I think maybe we should go forward in time, maybe say early 90s. The world of the talk show was in a tempestuous state with Carson's departure in 92. So I think it would be in our best interest to maybe look next time at the rivals, the usurpers, the people who try to have their own talk show, not necessarily succeed for whatever reason. So in that respect, in a few episodes' time, Gary and I will be embracing the Chevy Chase show. All of them. As many as we can get. I believe there are 15 of the 25 episodes in circulation. That's probably going to be enough. I'm quite giddy at the thought of (laughs) watching them. And this is going to be a three-parter like this one, except probably quite long episodes, I imagine. These will be where we look at five episodes a show out of the 15 episodes that we will have available to us. So, Gary, I suggest you go off now and prepare yourself for war, for it will be dark times ahead. It will be a battle. It will be bloody. It will not end well. I don't know. I don't know if we'll both survive. I don't know if we'll both be there at the end of the podcast. I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking f- I've heard so many different things, and there's such a background and an aftermath (laughs) to the whole thing (laughs) i'm excited about that and unfortunately this is one of those times where i can only advise the listener in regards to the chevy chase show is that we will be talking about it extensively and only certain clips have appeared in certain places if you know where to look by all means do try and obtain copies of the chevy chase show but In the meantime, I will say, Gary, thank you very much for joining us on this epic journey into one episode of The Tonight Show from 1972. I think we covered all the bases rather well, if I don't say so myself. I think we've we've covered all angles and more. Indeed. And this episode will be coming out in June. And I believe there are some interesting developments ahead for the summer for the sitcom club. Yes, indeed. At the moment, we are on our summer halls. But that does not mean that the podcast feed is dormant because we have a succession of sitcom club spin-off podcasts at the moment. And amongst the ones that you can hear already, you can hear us discussing 321 in Game Show Club, for example. And we'll be talking about all manner of different things, everything other than sitcoms. We're going to be talking about the World Cup shortly. And we're also going to be talking about a particular genre of film, one that has been sadly forgotten. Some more on that to come in the next couple of weeks. So yes, keep an eye on that. And I believe it's also going to be a... I think it's now referred to as a supercut. And what that means is basically a re-edit, but a supercut of this very show is going to feature. 
So it's going to be all the best bits of this show percolated down into a sort of handy snap pack sized microwavable version. Which tragically will also include the plug for this particular show that you're hearing now. (laughs) And so you may have heard some of these already, hopefully, on the Sitcom Club feed. This may be the last piece. I don't know. We will see. We'll see how the order of events occurs. But do tune in and do, of course, subscribe to the Sitcom Club. There's plenty of great shows already available, but more, many, many more to come. We've got one to record in the very near future that uh, I'm looking forward to. Gary, thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next time for the Chevy Chase Show. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our extensive review of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson from November the 9th, 1972. If you have any suggestions of any particular shows that you'd like us to have a look at, you can send us an email via admin at podnose.com. You can also send us a message via Twitter with our handle at Talk Show Podcast, and you can like our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash talkshowpodcast. I've been your host, George Grimwood. Thanks once again to my guest, Gary Roger of the Sitcom Club Podcast, and I'll be seeing you next week on another episode of the Talk Show Talk Show Podcast. Talk Show Talk Show podcast is part of the Podnose Network. Music by Ian Cummins, sound engineering by Ocho, and produced and edited by George Grimwood. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast as featured on the Sitcom Club feed this time round. But if you'd like to subscribe to the Talk Show Talk Show podcast, you can find us on iTunes simply by typing in the Talk Show Talk Show podcast with George Grimwood. Alternatively, you can go and follow us on Twitter with the handle at Talk Show Podcast. You can like our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Talk Show Podcast. And if you have any queries about the Talk Show Talk Show podcast, or indeed the Sitcom Club, or Podnose in general, you can always get involved and email us at admin at podnose.com. Thank you very much, George, for joining us today. We will be back with you again next week with another of the Sitcom Club's summer spin-offs. And don't forget, stay tuned, because we'll, of course, be back with the regular Sitcom Club as well in the autumn, and we'll be getting through everyone's requests, and hopefully we might have a few more interviews lined up and what have you. Thank you very much indeed for listening, and we'll be with you again soon.